Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Coastal residents in South Carolina are under a hurricane warning. Forecasters project Ian, now a tropical storm, will return to hurricane strength. Ian, meanwhile, leaves behind a trail of destruction from southwestern through central Florida. Millions of people in the state without power. The heavy rains continue to pose flash flood threats. Carrie Barber of member station WGCU is covering the hard-hit community of Fort Myers. I got the sense that a lot of people did not evacuate. As you said, it's difficult to evacuate. Right. It's expensive. It's hard if you have health problems and pets and loved ones, etc. Um, uh, I would say that it's uh, Pine Island, as you mentioned, and Sanibel and Captiva. The bridge that goes to Sanibel and Captiva was destroyed and is washed out. Carrie Barber speaking with NPR's Here and Now. President Biden has signed a major disaster declaration to assist communities in Florida. And as NPR's Asma Khalid tells us, Biden's sending the head of FEMA to Florida tomorrow to check in on response efforts. The president spoke with Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis about the federal government's response. He told reporters he's not focused on political disagreements, but on saving people's lives and businesses. This could be the deadliest hurricane in Florida's history. The numbers of still are still unclear, but we're hearing early reports of what may be substantial loss of life. The president was at FEMA headquarters for a briefing on federal efforts in Florida. Biden also repeated his warnings to oil and gas execs to not use this storm as an excuse to raise gas prices. Asma Khalid, NPR News, the White House. When it comes to damage assessment, the IRS announced today that Hurricane Ian victims throughout Florida now have until February 15th of next year to file various federal, individual and business tax returns and make tax payments. As Russia moves to annex four areas in Ukraine, its forces continue to pound others with missiles and artillery. NPR's Jason Bobian reports at least two people were killed, a dozen injured in the bombing of downtown bus stop in one area. Local authorities here say that a series of cluster bombs ripped through one of Mikolaev's main thoroughfares at 5.30 p.m. local time. A missile strike on the city of Dnipro earlier in the day left a massive crater where three houses had previously stood. That attack killed several people, including an eight-year-old boy and a nine-year-old girl. Further into the Ukrainian heartland, and far from the front lines, a missile struck the central city of Kramatorsk. And illustrating the geographic breadth of the Russian aerial strikes, officials say more than 50 explosions were recorded in less than an hour north of Kyiv, near the Russian border. That's Jason Bobian reporting. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren is asking regulators to block Amazon's planned acquisition of Bedford-based company iRobot. In a letter to the Federal Trade Commission, Warren argues Amazon would control too much of the household robot market, reduce competition, and put consumer privacy at risk. The commission is investigating the potential acquisition. As the strength and duration of hurricanes increases with the climate change, analysis finds hospitals in the Boston metropolitan area could be disrupted by flooding during a moderate-level hurricane. WBR's Martha Biemiger has more on a study out of Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Boston ranks third among Atlantic and Gulf Coast cities where hospitals or roads around them would be at risk for flooding during a Category 2 storm. The projections are based on federal storm surge maps using current conditions. Senior author Dr. Ari Bernstein says the risk will increase as sea levels rise. Places that don't know hurricanes 
from Adam are now going to be at risk and our infrastructure is not ready for it. In addition to developing better backup power systems, the study says the state needs a more detailed plan for evacuating and transferring patients in advance of a storm. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. Boston University is renaming its School of Medicine after two men who are childhood friends. They are BU alum Edward Avedisian and BU's former president and School of Medicine dean Aram Chobanian. The men grew up together in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, after their families fled the Armenian genocide. Avedisian says he donated $100 million to the school in honor of his friend who dedicated his career to the university. Avedisian played clarinet with the Boston Pops and the Boston Ballet Orchestra and credits Chobanian with introducing him to the instrument. In sports, Red Sox and Orioles finish off their series at Fenway with a matinee today. The game is now tied 3-3 in the eighth inning. Partly sunny today, partly cloudy overnight tonight. Overnight lows about 48. Tomorrow, sunshine returns. Highs near 62 tops. And then clouds roll in for the weekend. This is WBUR. It's 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank. MathWorks.com GBFB. And Insperity, providing HR services for 30-plus years, including access to employee benefits and payroll. Insperity's mission is to help businesses succeed so communities prosper. Insperity, HR that makes a difference. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Hurricane Ian is now Tropical Storm Ian, but it may not be done just yet. It has entered the Atlantic Ocean and is expected to regain strength and hit South Carolina as a hurricane tomorrow. In Florida, Ian left behind a trail of destruction. On Wednesday, the storm pummeled communities from Naples to Port Charlotte with 140-mile-per-hour winds. A massive storm surge also devastated resorts like Fort Myers Beach and Sanibel Island. Today, Southwest Florida began assessing the damage. NPR's Greg Allen has spent the day visiting communities recovering from the storm. He joins us now from Sarasota. Hi, Greg. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so where exactly have you been today? Well, you know, there's little power and cell service in the affected area, so I had to drive quite a ways north just to get a signal out. But one place we visited was Northport, a town in Charlotte County where there was a lot of canals. Water rushed in there yesterday, residents said, when the storm surge happened, and many neighborhoods were flooded. We stopped outside one development, Country Club Ridge, which still had six feet of standing water in some places. Residents were using canoes and kayaks to paddle to and from their homes, ferrying out people, pets, and possessions. Many people were clearly stressed here. Uh, others were just trying to make the best of it. Yeah. Well, were rescue crews present to help? Well, while we were there, this was all being done by residents and volunteers. You know, uh, people were wondering where some of the help was coming from. Later in the day, we did see some local officials bringing school buses to take people uh, who were being rescued from their homes, taking them to shelters. We talked at one point to Elvis Salte and her neighbor, Heather Rosler, about what they went through yesterday. Everything's flooded, trees down, fence down, arbor down, everything's destroyed, everything, every home in there. Windows broken. Windows broken, roofs off. It's really a very difficult time for many here. There's just so much work to be done now. We also visited another community in Charlotte County, Englewood. Almost every building that we saw was damaged in some way. Michael Daly, a resident there, says the problem was that for several hours, it was just the wind was relentless. It was insane. 
the, the wind was as strong as anything I've ever seen. When we saw the cage starting to go, we started slicing the, the screen so it wouldn't pull the whole side of the house off. If you look around, some of the guys that didn't, their, their, their soffits and everything got torn down. It was really a tough scene there in Inglewood. Yeah. In I can hear it in the voices. Mm. I know that many of these communities there were battered for like hours and hours by this hurricane. Uh, which areas saw the most damage? Well, you know, we're as you know, as you noted, we're still doing getting the assessment in, but yeah. it's clear that one of the hardest hit areas was Fort Myers Beach, which was just totally devastated. You know, we had that storm surge there for, for hours and plus the high winds. Uh, the, the pier there, this well-known uh, pier, was destroyed. Only the pylons are left standing. Uh, some important bridges were also taken out. Uh, the causeway to Sanibel Island was washed out in many places. And that's a place I think many people know. It's this beautiful island that's a big resort place where people come from around the country. Um, that The causeway is now unusable, meaning that it's totally cut off now from the mainland. Uh, today, uh, Governor DeSantis, Florida's governor, talked about it. Well, Sanibel uh, is destruction. Uh, and this is, I mean, for those of you who haven't been, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful place, um, really neat community, um, and it got hit with really biblical storm surge. The governor said the state will work with locals there to make sure the Sanibel gets back the way it was before the storm. And I think that's going to be, that's been his tone all along, is that he says we will make a commitment working with the federal government to rebuild uh, southwest Florida, you know, so that we can recover from this. And Greg, what about the power situation? Has that noticeably improved at all? Noticeably, it's hard to say. If you're in a place where your powers came back on, then certainly you're, it, it's improved. Uh, and crews have been out very busy today restoring power to some areas. But there's still more than 2 million customers without power. Um, we did get one piece of good news on the power front today, which is from the head of the state's largest utility, Florida Power and Light. He said they didn't find any major structural damage to any of their, their towers. That means that restoring power, although it's going to take some time, might go a little faster than what he'd warned earlier. That is NPR's Greg Allen in Sarasota, Florida, with the latest on Hurricane Ian, which is now Tropical Storm Ian. Thank you so much, Greg. You're welcome. Earlier today, the Biden administration quietly reversed course on who qualifies for the president's sweeping student loan relief plan. Many borrowers who Biden had promised to help will now be left out. NPR's Corey Turner spotted the change on the Education Department's website this morning and joins us now. Hi, Corey. Hey, Juana. So, Corey, what has changed here? Yeah, so this morning I was looking over the department's loan relief guidance for a very specific group of borrowers. These are people with federal family education loans. They're known as FEL loans. Uh, these are issued and managed by private banks, but they are guaranteed by the federal government. And until this morning, the Education Department's website said these borrowers could qualify for debt relief. They just needed to consolidate those loans into federally held direct loans. But then I noticed around 11.15 or so, that guidance completely changed. The website now says these borrowers do not qualify for debt relief unless they started the process of consolidating their loans before today, Juana. Mm -hmm. um, the big question, how many people are we talking about, is, is complicated. We know roughly 4 million have these commercially held fell loans, but we also know that many of them will still qualify because they also happen to have direct loans. Um, just before coming on air, I spoke with an administration official who assured me the number is much lower, maybe around 800,000 borrowers who could have qualified but now won't. Part of this is we'll wait and see. 
Corey, to me, this sounds pretty significant, but also like the kind of change that could put the administration in hot water with some people. Do you have any sense so far of what the rationale was behind the change? Yeah, an education department spokesperson told me, you know, our goal is to provide relief to as many eligible borrowers as quickly and easily as possible. And the department will continue to explore additional legally available options to provide relief to borrowers with privately owned fell loans. And Juana, I, I think the tell in that statement is the words legally available. I've spoken with multiple legal experts who say this reversal was likely made out of concern that the private banks that manage these old fell loans could potentially claim financial harm and take the Biden administration to court. Corey, is that a legitimate concern? Are these lawsuits happening? Yeah, uh, they have begun. Um, depending on how many borrowers consolidate, you know, these companies could see a lot of lost loans that they were planning on managing for years. In fact, just today, there was a new lawsuit filed by six state attorneys general, and it makes this very argument about one of these groups called Mohila. It's a loan servicer that manages both federal direct loans and these old RAM loans. And in the legal complaint, they say letting borrowers consolidate to get debt relief, quote, harms Mohila by depriving it of the ongoing interest payments that those loans generate. Mm. And I think the department is worried that, you know, one of these banks or servicers could be granted legal standing in court and then ask the courts to freeze debt relief for everybody. Which would certainly be a big deal. Okay, Corey, so yeah. the department is trying to dodge a lawsuit from one of these banks, but am I understanding you right that it's possible that the right lawsuit could just complicate debt relief for everybody? I mean, it's a possibility. And, 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 you know, it's one that a lot of conservatives are actively exploring right now. They see Biden's debt relief plan as executive overreach. The big challenge for them is finding a plaintiff who can prove he will be harmed. Uh, we saw another lawsuit filed Tuesday by a borrower who said he didn't want to take a big state income tax hit mm. on his relief. In response, the department said borrowers can opt out. Now we have today's move likely trying to head off the claims of harm from some banks and loan servicers. Honestly, Juana, I think this is just beginning. I think once we get the application from the Ed Department for debt relief, we'll probably see several more lawsuits. We'll check back in with you, NPR's Corey Turner. Thank you. You're welcome. This is 90.9 WBUR on Wall Street. The Dow lost 1.5% today, 458 points to close at 29,226. S&P fell more than 2% to close at 3640. The Nasdaq dropped nearly 3% to finish at 10,738. Details coming up on Marketplace at 630. It's now 416. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. And the holiday pops, helping you prepare for the most wonderful time of year by unwrapping the magic of the holiday pops. December 1st through 24th, holidaypops.org. Red Sox and Orioles are still tied at 3-3 in the eighth inning at Fenway Park now. And in the forecast, a lovely evening coming up overnight tonight. Partly cloudy skies on the cool side, about 48 degrees. Tomorrow should bring back the sunshine, about 62 degrees tops. 63 now in the Boston area. This is WBUR.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. Peer-led courses, speakers, and more. Apply now for 2023, the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. And Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. I'm Scott Simon. Your monthly contribution to WBUR says that you value journalism that keeps you informed. You value reporting that's rooted in your community. You value independent journalism as the foundation of our democracy. More than what your contribution says about you is what it can do. Your monthly contribution to WBUR makes the station's independent journalism possible. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. In fact, what your contribution does is basically everything that you hear on the air at WBUR, everything you you read and see at WBUR.org, everything that we do in terms of podcasts. And that's why we're asking for your support right now, because we need to make up some lost ground. I'm Lisa Mullins with Tiziana Deering of Radio Boston. Let me give the phone number 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Hey, Lisa, you know, we've been talking over the last few days about how important WBUR is in giving you clarity and calm. We don't give you high drama. We give you clear, straightforward information. So allow me to be clear now and tell you that we are significantly behind where we need to be before this fundraiser ends tomorrow, and it will end tomorrow no matter what. This is the moment then. We are asking you to help us catch up. I am asking you to take a step now to help us catch up. If this is your first time giving, man, what a perfect chance to do that for the quality news and information you've come to rely on. If this is a, a, a new gift for you, but you've given before. Thank you for before. And again, I'm telling you, we are behind where we need to be for tomorrow. This would be a great time to step up and show how much you value that clear, calm, civil information we provide you. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. I don't know how many radio stations keep you in the driveway so that you can listen to the end of whatever the story is because it's fascinating and because you're really learning something from it. And WBUR definitely does that. You feel like you've actually grasped the meaning behind what you're listening to and why something's happening. They sort of unpack an issue and they get people from industry, from policy, from the research world to speak on whatever the topic is. And so you get a well-rounded look at whatever the issue is. WBUR allows for the gray area, what it would look like if there wasn't a right answer or if there are many right answers. For all the reasons you listen, give monthly at WBUR.org. And give right now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Each of those listeners, I feel, Tiziana, I don't know about you, but when I hear them, I think, yeah, they really get us. Yeah. <laughs> including that last one about how we allow for the gray area on issues. Um, this one is pretty black and white, though. We hope you will give now and you'll be entered into win a trip for two to France. You'll be able to customize your trip, seven-day-long trip, worth $7,000. You'll go to Paris and Provence. And uh, this is a trip for two people. It includes airfare and hotel accommodation. 
accommodations. You can visit the Louvre and the Musée d'Orsay, one of my personal favorite museums. Savor pastry and chocolate, two of my favorite things to do as well. You're killing me. Not that I'll be going, but um, (laughs) yeah, really. So please make your pledge right now, 1-800-909-9287, or pledge online if you prefer at WBUR.org, and you will be entered into win a trip for two to France, and this is only on offer for today, I believe. Up until 7 p.m. Yep, so please call now. And that's an important moment because our fundraiser will be open over tomorrow regardless, whether we meet our target, what we what we are asking for, what we need or not. We are considerably behind that now. This is the perfect time to get entered for the sweepstakes and give $10 a month because if you give $10 a month, we can also give you as a thank you gift a super fun pack, cool charcoal backpack, a really cool WBUR hat. It's got embroidery. I have one at home. It is a really good baseball cap. Mm -hmm. And a water bottle. And again, that's not the point, right? The thank you gifts are not the point. They're a little bit of joy that we give to say thank you for supporting us. The point is that quality local, local news and information is in short supply. But you always know you can turn to us, to WBUR, to do that for you. You are the lion's share of our funding. You make up the largest portion. We're running behind. Now is a great time to step up and provide WBUR for you and for everyone else who maybe we can't right now. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. So if you believe in community, WBUR creates a community. You help us expand it. And when the community is um, uh, more informed, is edified, is even entertained, it's a better community. So we all have a stake in keeping WBUR strong. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com. And from DuckDuckGo, committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer internet privacy with one download. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified. At DuckDuckGo.com. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. The latest flashpoint in public education is something that a lot of teachers thought was settled territory. It's called social-emotional learning. There have been protests about it at school board meetings in Arizona and Indiana, legislators trying to ban it in classrooms in Oklahoma and Wisconsin. In fact, in the last two years, NPR found evidence of disputes like this in at least 25 states. As NPR's Meg Anderson reports, the backlash has roots in another political lightning rod for schools. Early last year, school administrator Angela Nichols started hearing an unusual question from parents. Principals were being asked, can you talk to me about how you use social emotional learning in your school? Are there connections to critical race theory? She works for Virginia Beach City Public Schools. Families were asking at a PTA meeting. Parents were asking their child's classroom teacher. Parents asking questions is totally reasonable. 
But Nichols found this puzzling because social-emotional learning, or SEL, teaches students about managing their feelings. Critical race theory, on the other hand, is the idea that racism is systemic in our laws and institutions. It's not explicitly taught in our K-12 schools, but that hasn't stopped conservatives from treating the two terms as if they're the same thing and protesting them at school board meetings and other education events across the country. Here's a community member in Virginia. We desire an excellent academic education for our children, not SEL or CRT. Another in Texas. I rise in opposition to SEL in any contract that supports SEL or CRT. And an advocate speaking to a community in Ohio. Critical race theory, gender ideology, this is all coming in under the umbrella of social emotional learning. The claim on the right comes down to this, that teachers are hiding critical race theory in other lessons, and social-emotional learning has been a key target. Conservatives have called SEL a, quote, Trojan horse for critical race theory, or a, quote, new variant of the CRT virus. Here's the conservative commentator Glenn Beck in a YouTube video. The social-emotional learning is how they're getting it all done. We've been fighting an incomplete partial battle focusing just on CRT or sex ed. In Florida, the state banned the inclusion of social-emotional learning alongside critical race theory in its guidelines for social studies textbooks. In Wisconsin, Republican lawmakers introduced a bill limiting how racism is talked about in the classroom. SEL was included in a list of terms related to CRT. But social-emotional learning wasn't always political or controversial. In the past... It was just part of what a good teacher does. Aaliyah Samuel is the CEO of the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning, or CASEL. Social-emotional learning really is about developing skills that help us to be successful in all parts of our lives. It is about how we communicate effectively, how we stay motivated. It's how we make good decisions. It's existed for decades under different names, like character education, non-cognitive skills. In the adult world, they're often called soft skills. It's basically what Mr. Rogers made a career doing on PBS. In school, it's more commonly taught in the younger grades. All 50 states have SEL standards in preschool. About half have standards in the other Morning. grades. Morning, Sebastian. This is a video of teacher Denise Balderrama in the San Bernardino City Unified School District in California. At a morning meeting with first graders, she launches into an SEL lesson. How would you feel if one of your friends took your last snack? The students are sitting in a circle. When they answer, they get to hold a little stuffed monkey. I will feel mad because then I wouldn't have nothing to eat. Balderrama validates that feeling. All right. Thank you, Brooklyn. Who else wants to share? Studies show lessons like these lead to better academic and behavior outcomes for students. So why the outrage from the right? It's more a gut-level reaction. Rick Hess is the director of education policy studies at the conservative American Enterprise Institute. He says some of the anger is about mistrust, particularly of the big organizations that provide resources to school districts. He says a lot of parents think this is a case of big, deep-pocketed, liberal coastal foundation coming in, led by people who went to elite colleges who aren't from their communities, pushing ideological agendas that they find problematic, and then calling them racists and idiots when they push back. Hess says many conservatives feel social-emotional learning spends too much time talking about race. 
But some of SEL is about creating a sense of belonging, and that does have to do with your identity, whether that be your race, where you're from, your gender identity, or anything else. It's pretty impossible to do social and emotional learning without larger social issues coming into play. That's Andrew Hartman, a historian of education trends at Illinois State University. He says SEL isn't just about individuals. It's about how an individual is situated in a society. Organizations like CASEL are quick to note that social-emotional learning is not tied to any political viewpoints. They acknowledge that questions of identity and culture can come up. But some SEL advocates think that's not enough. They argue systemic racism should play a larger part in these lessons. If we don't apply an anti-racist, abolitionist, anti-oppressive, and anti-biased lens to social-emotional learning, it can very easily turn into white supremacy with a hug. Dina Simmons is the founder of Liberate Ed, an organization which centers racial justice in social-emotional learning. We always say, you know, social-emotional learning is so that people can get along better. We also have to talk about why people don't get along. We have to think about our current context. And you can't have those conversations without talking about identity. That tension means many educators wind up threading a needle whenever they talk about race or racism in social-emotional learning. What we are experiencing right now feels so similar to what we have gone through in other moments. Natalia Melman Petrozella is a history professor at the New School in New York City. She says there was backlash to teaching about racism in the 1960s and 70s, too. But this time, it's different. I think one really big change is the role of social media and our sort of like instant news culture. That means once an idea or conspiracy theory takes off, it's everywhere. And so I think that accounts for the fact that, yes, this does feel uniquely intense and uniquely harmful. For teachers, today's backlash is a constantly moving and rapid target. Yet another thing to navigate in the school year ahead. Meg Anderson, NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science. It's time to talk about mental health. Join the conversation at Mental Health Mind Matters, a new groundbreaking exhibit. Tickets at MOS.org. And New England Botanic Garden at Tower Hill, welcoming families to its new whimsical garden, The Ramble, enchanted by fairy houses. More at NEBG.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Hurricane Ian is causing widespread flooding in Florida hundreds of miles from where the storm actually came ashore yesterday. From member station WMFE in Orlando, Amy, Amy Green has more. Governor Ron DeSantis is describing swiftly rising waters in central Florida as a 500-year flood event as slow-moving Hurricane Ian inundates waterways already swollen from a rainy summer. Outside of Orlando, Seminole County officials issued an order banning motorized boats from roadways. Sheriff Dennis Lima says non-motorized boats like kayaks or John boats are okay. The last thing we want people is going up 1792 or or one of the other thoroughfares throughout Seminole County uh, with a motorized boat. Evacuations and water rescues have been reported across a huge section of the state, still facing impacts from the storm. For NPR News, I'm Amy Green in Orlando. Meanwhile, President Biden says the entire country hurts along with the people of Florida after Hurricane Ian flooded communities across the state. Biden says the storm could end up as the deadliest in Florida's history. 
The state's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, requested additional federal assistance, and today, President Biden declared a major disaster in parts of the state. That means the federal government will cover 100 percent of the cost to clear debris and for all the costs the state has to do, has to engage in and expend to save lives. Biden says DeSantis, a fierce critic of the president and the administration in general, was extremely happy with the federal response. The president says he will visit Florida when conditions allow it and will also visit Puerto Rico, which was slammed earlier this month by Hurricane Fiona. Stocks finished sharply lower on Wall Street today. The Dow down more than one and a half percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The latest MCAS standardized test scores show Massachusetts students are making a slow, mixed recovery from losses in learning during the pandemic. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, math and science scores are up slightly, while scores in English have continued to slide, due in part to struggles with writing. The MCAS is unusual among state standardized tests because it leaves lots of room for student writing. And last year's tests suggest that since 2019, writing has suffered. Statewide average scores are down 18%. After online learning and amid unprecedented absenteeism, that stands to reason, according to State Education Commissioner Jeff Riley. We think that it's hard to learn to read, you know, over Zoom. That holds true for writing as well, right? Writing is a process that you get better at by working closely with your teacher. Critics of the test say those kinds of pandemic disruptions make these latest results less than reliable. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. The American Red Cross of Massachusetts has sent staff members and volunteers to help on the ground in Florida. The Red Cross placed workers there before Hurricane Ian hit to prepare to aid recovery efforts. Spokesman Jeff Hall says this weekend another 12 to 18 people from the Bay State will head south. They will be working in Red Cross shelters, helping people that have been displaced from their homes, and they'll be working just to care and feed them while you know they figure out what is next uh, with emergency managers in Florida. Hall says the focus of the recovery efforts is to keep people safe until they can return home. The longtime head of the now-defunct Casanueva Vida homeless shelter has changed his plea to guilty to charges of embezzlement. Manuel Duran admitted to taking $1.5 million uh, from the group he was charged last year. The theft forced the shelter to merge with another organization. Today, a Suffolk Superior Court judge sentenced Duran to one year at the House of Correction with four years probation. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by JBS Home Inspections with condo common area consultations as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston. JBSinspections.com and prompt.com with a mission to help students stand out on their college applications and get into their top colleges through one-on-one application and essay coaching. More at prompt.com. Some good news from Fenway Park this afternoon. The Red Sox have broken a tie. They now lead the Orioles in the ninth inning, 5-3. to three. The forecast, partly cloudy overnight tonight. Overnight lows about 48 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine returns. Highs near 62 degrees tops. 63 now in Boston. This is WBUR.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's My Obsession, with Stephen Galloway's Devil's Eye, set to music by the Rolling Stones, October 6th to 16th, tickets at bostonballet.org. And Ceres, a nonprofit focused on our most pressing sustainability issues, including a green economy. More at ceres.org slash WBUR. I'm Anthony Brooks. There is an inseparable link between the journalism that you rely on from WBUR and the listener support that makes it possible. Listener support continues to carry WBUR like never before. That's why your monthly gift is so important right now. To give, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thanks. Thank you so much if you've already given. In fact, many people have come to the plate today to give because they heard the news early this morning that we are significantly behind in this fund drive. So there are many people who have stepped up and who are helping WBUR, helping to protect independent journalism. Um, We still need, we wouldn't be saying this if we didn't still need to make our budget, though. We still need to hear from more of you in order to successfully end our fund drive tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. So here's the number, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with the Radio Boston host, Tiziana Deering. And I'm so glad you said come to the plate because I'm going to run with that. If the Red Sox can pull ahead 5-3, this Red Sox team, then we can come from significantly behind where we need to be. And that's where we are right now. We are considerably behind. Before the end of our fundraiser tomorrow, you are our key player. You are our utility player. We're turning to you. I'm turning to you, asking you to join those other people who have heard our honest, transparent information today about where we are and said, okay, It's my turn. I'm stepping up. I'm going to bring the quality news and information to my entire community. Asking it to be you this time, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. We bring you such a wide range of stories, and your funding gives us that. CEO Margaret Lowe talked with Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi about that range and scope of the stories that we bring you. People tell us that they appreciate the nuance and the context, and that's whether we're talking about the war in Ukraine or the death of Queen Elizabeth. And that's just as true in our local coverage, like Martha Biebinger's series from Brockton, where overdose deaths from opioids hit a new high. And Martha reported on that, and she also covered what's being done to address the problem. And the reporting was rigorous, and it was deep, and the storytelling was vivid and sound rich. It was the kind of story that really took you there. You can help us come from behind. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. None of these stories happen without you. Help us close the gap. Absolutely. Um, Everything that we get uh, goes back into the programming that we have on WBUR. So that's how transparent we are. Um, When you make a call to WBUR, here's the number 1-800-909-9287. Or when you go online at WBUR.org, you will automatically be entered into win a seven-day trip to Paris and Provence for two people. It includes airfare, hotel accommodations. The whole thing is actually worth $7,000. You get to see the Louvre, the Musée d'Orsay. You get to Notre Dame Cathedral, uh, Avignon, uh, tour the vineyards. This is a fantastic trip. You can potentially win it because 
all the names of people who have called are going into our big sweepstakes pot. And uh, 7 o'clock tonight is the deadline. By the way, if you're a sustaining member of WBUR and if you made a pledge already, your name will automatically be entered in to win the sweepstakes. You have to make the call, though, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. You didn't mention the chocolate. There's chocolate. Oh, if you win, if you win the sweepstakes, there's chocolate. Yeah. And that is the dessert in bringing the quality news and information that you rely on. I know I keep hitting the quality news and information, but a lot out there isn't. We are and we need you to help bring it to you. We are behind where we needed to be, and the fundraiser will be open over tomorrow regardless. So this is the moment to help us close the gap. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And as we said, a lot of people have been responding uh, so positively and making their call and their pledge of support, and we are really, really grateful. Um, for those of you who haven't, you know, we hope that you won't hold back because the truth is that we need your money to support the independent journalism that you hear on WBUR. We can literally not do it without you. We appreciate your listenership and we certainly appreciate your funding as well. We all have an investment in WBUR's success. Uh, those of you who listen on a regular basis know that you can count on us for solid, fact-based, independent, accountable journalism. And that's why you listen, because you can't get that everywhere. It's uh, uh, news that you can count on, news that does not uh, have uh, reporters or anchors who yell at you, who tell you what to think, who present opinion and, and uh, disguise it as fact. That's not what we do. And we think that's why you listen. So here's the time to call and pledge your support for it right now. At 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. We bring you the information without color or drama. It's the facts with clarity. And the facts with clarity in this moment are we need you. We're asking you now. Again, go to WBUR.org or 1-800-909-9287. We appreciate you. Give now. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed. Dot com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. At one point, Hurricane Ian was feared to directly hit the Tampa Bay region, where Chelsea Rivera is a Ph.D. student in St. Petersburg. So she went south to shelter with her parents in Sarasota. Hurricane Ian actually landed more south, meaning that Chelsea Rivera's evacuation plan actually brought her closer to the storm center and its Category 4 winds. I see palm trees swaying back and forth. Um, The scariest part is probably the wind. Um, It's, like you said, it's going 150 miles an hour. Um, It's shaking the house. Um, Rain is pelting, you know, the windows. Last night, I spoke to her just hours after the eye of the hurricane had made landfall. But the hurricane was not done with Southwest Florida yet. I want to say it was dinner time. The winds were crazy. Sounded like a freight train. I was up probably up until like one o'clock in the morning. And even then, 
I could hear the wind. And it kind of kept me up last night, to be quite honest. It was just it was scary. And every time the wind blew, you could just feel the house shaking. So we were very scared that, you know, um, the glass was going to break in our house, you know, on the windows that weren't boarded up. So it was scary. She eventually did get some sleep. And when she woke up this morning... It was it was quiet. <laughs> so I was, I was relieved that the storm was gone. That was my, my first thought. <laughs> Her second thought? I was a little bit nervous to go outside just to see how bad um, the damage was. It actually took out half of our fence. And then also, I think, the fence of our neighbor as well. But luckily, my entire neighborhood, yeah, there, there were trees down, the, the house across the street, their, their palm trees completely destroyed. But other than that, everybody's safe um, and the damage wasn't that bad. Damage might not be that bad in her parents' neighborhood in Sarasota, which was not in an evacuation zone. But where she lives in St. Petersburg, that may be a different story. I have no clue. We're on the third floor, so I don't think our uh, apartment was hit by flooding. But we were actually on an island. So I, I can assume that that entire island is underwater right now. And there's probably, I have no access to that, um, to my apartment, at least for a while now. I'm just afraid it's completely underwater. Now, the center of the storm hit about 50 miles south of Sarasota, close to Fort Myers and Cape Coral. Those areas saw massive flooding and storm surge. But right now in Sarasota, the storm has passed. It's actually pretty beautiful out, surprisingly. It's been extremely hot. doesn't really look like there was a hurricane. It's just, you know, trees are down everywhere. So that's kind of been the only reminder. That's Chelsea Rivera, a student in southwest Florida. We'll have more coverage of Tropical Storm Ian elsewhere in the program. The messaging and social media app Telegram was designed to give its users a level of security above regular texting. It's globally accessible, offers end-to-end encryption for chats and video calls, and it now claims over 700 million users. But an article in Wired says that the app has now become a breeding ground for major doxing attacks all around the world. Peter Guest wrote that story and joins us now to explain. Welcome. Hi there. Hi. Okay, so can we just first define doxing? Like, how would you put it? So doxing is just the practice of sharing someone's private information on the internet. So their home address, their workplace, their phone number, some identifying information, uh, usually as a way to intimidate them. And can you explain why this works so well on Telegram specifically? So Telegram, as you said at the top of the show, is is something between a messaging app and a social media platform. Mm -hmm. It means that you can move quite seamlessly from sending and receiving anonymous private messages to then broadcasting them via channels. So anyone can set up a channel and those can have tens, hundreds of thousands of followers. So what you can do on Telegram, if I run a big channel, I can use my followers to crowdsource information about somebody that I want to expose. They can send me information anonymously. I can collect that information, cross-reference it, then broadcast it right back into the same channel to, to hundreds of thousands of users. And you mentioned a lot of different specific examples of these doxing attacks taking place all around the world in your story. Can you tell us about one example in particular? 
So the, the example that really drew me into the story was Myanmar, where there was a military coup d'etat in February 2021. And since then, the, the military junta that runs that country has pursued its perceived enemies. And that's included using informants online to identify and expose people. That's been going on for a while, but it really escalated this year. So there was a silent strike. Effectively, businesses and individuals said, we'll stay home, we'll shut, we'll leave the streets deserted. And in advance of that, several military supporting telegram channels started asking their followers to identify businesses and individuals who said they were going to join the strike. So these got posted in these channels, addresses, names. And within hours, in some cases, the premises were raided by police, people were arrested, they ended up in jail. Wow. Well, I'm curious, what's been Telegram's response to your reporting so far? So Telegram is a fairly secretive company mm-hmm. and hasn't historically engaged in any kind of deep way with, with journalists or civil society. They're based in Dubai, correct? So their structure is part of the reason why they are so complicated to to cover and regulate. So as far as, far as we know, they were founded in Russia, the software was developed in Germany. The headquarters are in Dubai, but the legal registration is in the British Virgin Islands. Wow. You know, I'm wondering about the original purpose of Telegram. I can imagine that one of its initial appeals was that it had this ability to protect messages from the eyes of the government. But now it's, in some cases, as you point out, being used as an instrument of the government to intimidate individuals. So I think... Telegram has become an incredibly consequential platform in authoritarian countries. You know, it's been used by people in those states to avoid censorship and to organize protest movements. You know, it's infuriated the censors in Russia for years, and and that's a great thing. But I guess that's perhaps why there's a little bit of a sense of betrayal here, that it's become an enormously dangerous place and a venue for these abuses. And... Certainly from the side of activists, they feel like Telegram is not supporting them, it's not listening to them, and it's not doing anything to make these spaces safer for them. Right. That was Peter Guest with his reporting that was recently published for Wired. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me. Support for Alltech Considered comes from Clavio, an email and SMS platform designed to bring all customer data into one place with e-commerce integrations to help drive revenue at klaviyo.com slash NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Russian President Vladimir Putin has scheduled an elaborate ceremony and speech at the Kremlin on Friday to proclaim that four regions in Ukraine are now part of Russia. Putin's annexation plan is roundly condemned by Ukraine and the West, and it's likely to make it much harder to find a solution to the war in Ukraine. For more, we're joined now by NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie. Hi, Greg. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so can you just first walk us through exactly what we expect to happen on Friday? Well, big banners have already gone up in Red Square just outside the Kremlin. 
Putin's spokesman has promised a major speech tomorrow. Uh, there's a rally and a concert planned. Russia wants to make this a big celebration. And this follows these referendums on joining Russia that Moscow staged in eastern and southern Ukraine over the past week, mm-hmm. which were widely condemned as illegitimate. And as we know, Russia's been moving in this direction of, of annexation. So it doesn't really come as a complete surprise, but it could be hugely significant as we look at how the war might eventually end. Uh, Anatole Levin, who's at the Quincy Institute in Washington, put it this way. If Putin annexes, I think formal peace negotiations as such are, are, are dead for the foreseeable future because, I mean, it will be extremely difficult for any Russian government to give this up if it, the Russian parliament has voted to annex it. Hmm. Well, in practical terms, what will this mean for people living in these regions that Russia plans to annex? Russia has already been treating them more or less as Russian territory. They're run by local officials aligned with Russia. The Ukrainians who have stayed have been given Russian passports. Russian currency is is used for transaction. Russian media and telephone connections are in place. But we should stress Russia doesn't control all four of these regions or all of the territory. Ukraine still has some of it and has actually been pushing back the Russians in some places. So Russians' sudden urgency in pushing through through the referendums and annexing this territory seem to be an attempt to claim this territory, claim a victory, before it could actually be lost on the battlefield. Right. Okay, but what are the like the political or military risks here for Putin, you think? Well, he's really making huge gambles on two fronts. With the annexation, he's taking a big political risk. He knows he'll get serious blowback from the West. Some additional sanctions already seem to be in the works. And with this ongoing effort to mobilize some 300,000 troops, he's taking a big military risk. He's making it clear that he's all in on the war. Anatole Levin believes Putin is taking these chances because the war has gone so badly for Russia. They may keep eventually these bits that they've occupied, but 85% of Ukraine by now, I think, is inevitably going to be completely, not just completely independent of Russia, but deeply hostile to Russia for all foreseeable time. Well, beyond condemnation, how are Ukraine and its supporters right now responding to all of this? You know, Ukraine hasn't said a whole lot just yet. President Zelensky plans a meeting Friday with his National Security Council. I think we'll get a, get a signal then. Uh, he's working certainly with the U.S. and its and allies to formulate a response. Just this afternoon, uh, President Biden called the Russian move an absolute sham. And the U.S. yesterday announced another $1.1 billion in military aid. It includes both immediate and longer-term assistance. And on the battlefield, uh, Ukraine is still making some limited advances in the east and the south, and there could be some more uh, pushes to come before the, the winter sets in. That is NPR's Greg Myrie. Thank you, Greg. My pleasure. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. Peer-led courses, speakers, and more. Apply now for 2023. The Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Misinformation is having a profound impact on our country. We need strong voices that tell the truth and deliver the facts. WBUR amplifies those voices, and its strength is listener support. Monthly contributions to WBUR ensure that hundreds of thousands of listeners get information they need to make critical decisions every day. 
not a monthly contributor yet? You can make a meaningful difference at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. That's the number to call, just as Mary Louise Kelly said. And she also said, our strength is listener support. In fact, it's our backbone. You make up the majority of our budget. So please make the call now, and especially right now, because, as Tiziana Deering is about to tell you, we have a generous match on the table thanks to other listeners just like you. Have you ever shifted a car into sports drive, Lisa? Yes. Yeah, and it goes vroom and drops that gear, and the car kind of bumps forward. Yes. That's what some members of our Murrow Society are doing for us right now. We need to catch up. We're a little bit behind where we need to be before this fundraiser ends tomorrow. And some members of our Murrow Society will be giving us a chance to do that catch-up by matching your gift at 50%. So let's be clear. A monthly gift of $10 is actually $15 for us. A monthly gift of $100 is actually $150. And hey, let's go a little crazy here. A one-time gift of $500 becomes $750, or if you can do it. $1,000 becomes 1500 This is the moment. We've got less than 30 minutes to take advantage of this 50% match. It will shift us into the next gear, and that's what we need to close the gap between where we are today and where we need to be when we end the fundraiser tomorrow. So... 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Let's put it in Sport Drive. Let's put it in Sport Drive. You know all the uh, the, the jargon and the metaphors. <laughs> I wish I could say. I was just going to say rev us up. Um, Ooh, I like and, it. And you have many people have called since we said early this morning. I think Rupa Shinoi was letting people know early today that we are behind, um, um, considerably behind, in fact, in our fundraising uh, in the amount that we're getting. And we have made up some ground. Thanks to all of you who have called in during the day today. We are so grateful. The fact is that we have a lot more ground to uh, uh, to make up. So please, right now, while this special match is on the table, 50% more is added to your gift. If it can be a monthly gift, it can be a one-time gift. So please call now, 1-800-909-9287. You can do it online at WBUR.org. It could be a monthly gift of $10 a month, $15 a month, $20 a month. It all has 50% more added to it. Could be a one-time gift of $100, which becomes $150. If you can do $1,000, that becomes $1,500. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. You know, Lisa, we opened here with Mary Louise Kelly. And yes, I work at WBUR, which is an NPR station, but I still kind of go, oh, she's so cool. Every she time I, is. I right? used to work with her. Yeah, she's fantastic. I think that is also very cool. And we can bring you Mary Louise Kelly. And we can bring you Lisa Mullins. We can bring you and what's happening in Russia. And we can bring you what's happening in Roxbury. We can do all of it, but because you give. Those members who have heard us loud and clear today, as we've said, listen, we need to close a considerable gap. Thank you. Now I'm turning to you. This is that moment. If you've ever hesitated, if you've put it off in this fundraiser, if you said, I don't really need to give or another time or I've given before, I'm talking to you now. This is the moment, please, to step up, help us close that gap, show how important Mary Louise Kelly, Lisa Mullins, Deb Becker, Rupa Shinoy are to your day. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Tiziana Deering, too, even though she won't say it. I won't. You know, think about the things that you love about WBUR and give to honor those things. It could be the people. It could be we know it's the stories. Uh, whatever you appreciate, put a dollar value on that and know that that's going to be uh, 50% greater right now when you 
you called because of this special match by listeners just like you. We want to be part, uh, or want you to be part of a strong station. And the fact is that you're responsible for making it a strong station. You make up the majority of our operating budget. So please do your part right now and you get back exactly what you give. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Again, generous listeners have given their money to match your monthly contributions, match it by 50%. So that goes on top of your monthly support. So please call in your monthly support, $10 a month, $20 a month if you can and it will be matched by 50%. 1-800-909-9287 or go online and pledge at WBUR.org and thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mathnasium committed to boosting students' confidence, critical thinking, and math grades and scores with in-person or online instruction. Each student follows a customized learning plan. More at mathnasium.com. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Rescue crews in many cases literally waiting to help residents stranded by Hurricane Ian. At least one person is confirmed dead along the state's eastern coast. Officials are anticipating the number will rise as crews reach some of the hardest hit areas. Renee Stone is assistant chief of Orange County Fire and Rescue. I'm used to seeing like, you know, the roof damages, down trees, some water areas, you know, where there's some level, you know, where it comes up, but nothing to this, you know, level. Ian has moved back out to sea, but not before cutting a swath of destruction through Florida. Ian bashed ashore yesterday as a Category 4 storm with 150-mile-an-hour winds generating huge storm surge and causing massive damage as it slogged across the state. Forecasters expect Ian to regain some strength over open ocean waters, possibly returning to hurricane strength before it comes ashore again, maybe in South Carolina. The Coast Guard is still searching for more than a dozen people after a boat carrying migrants sank off the coast of Florida. NPR's Joel Rose reports their vessel sank as Hurricane Ian lashed the region. The chief Border Patrol agent in Miami, Walter Slosser, said on Twitter that a total of nine Cuban migrants have been located or rescued. But more than a dozen are still unaccounted for after their boat sank in the Straits of Florida. The Coast Guard says search and rescue efforts continue. Four people were able to swim to shore in the Florida Keys. One of the migrants told a local TV station that the group had been at sea for five days. Immigration authorities have seen a surge in the number of apprehensions at sea, as thousands of migrants from Cuba, Haiti, and elsewhere board flimsy boats in a desperate attempt to reach the U.S. 
Joel Rose, NPR News. The Senate has voted to pass a short-term funding bill that will keep the government operating at current levels through mid-December, plus a few extras were thrown in. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the resolution now heads to the House. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is praising both parties for coming together to get the temporary funding bill passed. This is common sense, bipartisan legislation, and I'm glad we came to a timely conclusion and didn't go right up to the brink and risk a shutdown. The legislation includes roughly $12 billion in additional security aid for Ukraine and provisions that address natural disasters. Senate Democrats made some concessions in order to get the measure passed, including President Biden's request for more than $20 billion to fight the pandemic and monkeypox outbreak. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Washington. The U.S. economy was no longer growing during the second quarter of the year. The government today reporting the nation's gross domestic product, that's the broadest measure of goods and services moving through the economy, shrank at six-tenths of a percent annual rate from April through June. Stocks lost ground again today. The Dow dropped 458 points. The Nasdaq was down 314 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts American Red Cross will be sending 12 to 18 volunteers to Florida this weekend to help in the aftermath of Hurricane Ian. A Red Cross spokesman says their focus will be to help people keep uh, keep people safe until emergency officials determine that it is safe for them to go back home. As Ian moves up the coastline, it has affected people from Massachusetts who live in Florida in its path. WBR's Walter Wuthman spoke to two college students from Newton about how they fared in the storm. Julian Katsonis says he packed up his apartment near the University of Tampa Tuesday night and evacuated. His building is a block from the ocean, so he's worried it's now flooded. There was two feet of rain, so it's not looking too good for us, but we basically packed every single thing up out of the house. We stacked everything we could on higher ground. So right now, even if we did get a couple inches of water, we only really lost the couch and get some water damage to the beds. Katsonis went to a hotel in Orlando with his girlfriend, Kelly Manley, but she says that didn't offer an escape. The building got struck by lightning and we immediately lost power. And some of the building is like on the ground right now, like debris is all over the ground. Florida officials say the damage is extensive. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The first of six new Coast Guard cutters that will call Boston their home port arrived today at the city's Coast Guard station. The William Chadwick has a new design that's intended to be faster, and it has improved technology. The new cutters will replace the 1980s-era fleet of patrol boats. The cutter and its crew came from Key West, Florida. They departed before Hurricane Ian hit the state. Red Sox pulled out a win at Fenway Park this afternoon, 5-3 to three over the Orioles. Zach Kelly got the win. That makes three straight wins for the Sox. They hit the road tomorrow to start up a series in Toronto tomorrow night. Shots of sunshine breaking through the clouds this afternoon and evening. Tonight should be cooler, about 48 for a low partly cloudy. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, cool, with temperatures in the low 60s, which is where it is right now, 61 degrees in Boston at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. 
from NPR News. This is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Millions of Florida homes and businesses are still without power in the wake of Hurricane Ian. Lee and Charlotte counties in the southwestern part of the state are, quote, basically off the grid. That's according to Governor Ron DeSantis, who spoke earlier today. DeSantis said the entire electrical infrastructure in those two counties is wrecked and will take weeks or longer to rebuild. But we're committed to restoring the infrastructure as needed. That is not going to be an overnight task. That is going to be something that is going to require a lot of, a lot of love and care. It's going to require a lot of resources. WGCU reporter Sandra Victorova is in Charlotte County, and she joins us now. And Sandra, you know, yesterday we called you just as the eye of the storm was exactly over your area. I know you went last night to the Emergency Operations Center in Punta Gorda. How did things look then? Well, ironically, as, as you can imagine, those emergency operations centers are, are built, you know, extremely strong. And you could feel the vibration of the building. And there was actually water coming in through the door. And of course, uh-huh. we were absolutely safe and fine. Uh-huh. At the same time, I was worried for my friends and family uh, who were not there safe and sound with me. Um, my, my husband and my two sons were actually holding the front door for hours, uh, trying to keep it from, from coming in. Oh my and God. I can tell you that, that it's a similar story that I've heard from friends, actually, who mm-hmm. were really worried about, you know, either the, 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 the uh, door being pushed in and, and holding on for hours. Um, you know, coming home today was a, a little scary, wondering what was I going to find in the neighborhood. Um, trees are down, obviously. Power lines are down. Um, I actually had to think hard about which street to turn down because, you know, street signs are down and everything just looks so different. Um, I had the opportunity to, to, you know, drive around to different neighborhoods today. I went to a a mobile home community, um, and the the mobile homes, the RVs, were just tossed over like toys. Mm. There was a huge um, $600 million resort being built along the the Peace River right in between Punta Gorda and Port Charlotte. Mm-hmm. And these huge towering cranes, um, very tall, like for for, for huge buildings, to, this huge building to be built, was was bent over like a paperclip. And we're talking really strong uh, cranes built out of steel, just bent over like nothing. Um, so it's been it's it's sort of hard to describe how much yeah. damage there is. I will tell well, you you're that painting Charlotte a really County vivid picture. Can I just jump in and ask you about the sure. RV park? Because I understand that you talked with a woman who, who lives in that park. Can you tell us what she told you? You know, she, she actually said that she didn't leave because um, she didn't want to leave her neighbors behind. She sort of works part-time at the, at the park. Um, and she and her husband, you know, earn some money doing that. And, and they're all seniors. And she just felt that uh, she would be sort of abandoning friends, and she mm. decided to stay with them. They stayed in the the clubhouse. They all sheltered down there, and they they were safe. But essentially, their homes are 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 destroyed. They're all turned over, and and, and it, it, it's astounding when you see these structures, um, you know, these steel frames, and and when you see these 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 buildings that lose you know part of their structure. Um, you're sort of in awe of Mother Nature. Yeah. Well, I know that you live in Port Charlotte, in the county where the eye of the storm made landfall. If I may ask you, how's your whole family doing at this point? I mean, it was certainly uh, it's certainly 
they were not telling because I think uh, they would have known how uh, terrified I would have been, you know, knowing that, uh, you know, the worry was whether the roof was going to hold mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. And, and that it's a similar story for a lot of people. Um, you know, you, you, it's a tough decision. I talked to many people who were not sure about yeah. whether to stay or go. And, and I ended up finding out that a lot of people in the red zone, which is some of these barrier islands, a lot of seniors ended up not, not leaving and, and ended up calling last minute hoping that, you know, somebody would actually then help them yeah. get out before the storm came in. Okay. And unfortunately, you know, um, law enforcement had to say they'd have to wait the storm out on their own. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. That is WGCU reporter Sandra Victorova in Port Charlotte, Florida. Thank you so much, Sandra. Thank you. About 45 minutes south of Port Charlotte is Fort Myers, Florida, where Hurricane Ian hit hard. 18-year-old Bobby Pratt lived in Fort Myers his entire life until he went away to college. But once his classes were canceled, he decided to go back home to ride out the storm with his parents. And he joins me now from his parents' house in Fort Myers. Hi, Bobby. Hi. So I've heard that your family and friends are doing okay, but I'm hoping you can tell me what are the conditions like at your house? Do you have things like electricity and water and Wi-Fi? Yes. So right now we do have electricity here and we do have water, but we are under a boil water notice, so we can't drink any of the running water here. And we do have gallons and bottles of water to drink. Okay. That's great to hear. You were away at the University of Central Florida, which is a few hours north of Fort Myers. How did you decide to come back home? Well, our classes were canceled from uh, Wednesday to Friday. And so I decided to come back home on Monday because I initially I thought that the storm was going to hit Tampa and then move across the state and affect Orlando. So I decided to come home before that. And as it, the storm grew closer, it changed and it made landfall here. So when the storm was hitting your area, what were you seeing and hearing? What was that like? Um, as it began to hit us, Winds were ramping up. Debris started flying through the streets. Um, we could hear roofing tiles from our roof flying mm-hmm. off. And we could see trees outside bent over almost 90 degrees. Um, we had the wind was crazy. I mean, it was just it was destroying things around me. Like I saw a roof come off of a neighbor's house um, during the storm. Yeah, it was just crazy. And we don't have shutters or anything up on our windows. So we were just praying that None of the debris was going to hit our house and break any of our windows or damage our house severely. And how is your house doing? Right now, the main house is good. We're indoors. Nothing has been too damaged. We have a fence in our backyard that's pretty much completely, it was destroyed by the wind. Our front porch, we had some railing and stuff that was torn off and blown away. Uh, And as I said, our roof, the tiles were coming off the roof. That's pretty much all the damage that is to our house. We're pretty good right now. Now, I understand that Fort Myers is under a curfew, but before you received that order, you were out filming for social media. What have you seen? Just damage. Um, That's the only way, carnage is what I can describe it as. I was just in shock. As I was in the downtown area of Fort Myers, I saw boats in the streets, docks had floated up on the streets, big concrete docks had flown into the downtown area on the streets. As I went downtown, as I entered, I'm sorry, as I went to the beach, as I drove over the bridge, I could see that our fishing pier that has stored it was completely gone. Uh, I could just see that it was going to be bad, worse than I could have ever thought it was. And as I walked down the bridge, because I had to park my car on the bridge, I couldn't drive it any further. I walked down, I just saw that there was nothing. It was just rubble. Hmm. 
Growing up in Fort Myers, you must have some places that are really special to you. Were you able to check in on any of those this morning? Yeah, like I said, I went to the beach, um, and the beach is a place that me and my friends, we definitely spent a lot of our time there. I mean, our weekends, most of all of our weekends were spent there, uh, you know, in the water, walking around, eating. A lot of restaurants that we used to frequent are completely gone. I mean, there was a Dairy Queen that we used to stop by every time we were at the beach that like, is one of the buildings that's just completely gone. Um, so, yeah, a lot of the places that me and my friends and family frequented are just gone. Hmm. That's got to be really tough to see. Yeah. So, Bobby, what are the next steps for you and your community as you seek to recover from the storm? As of right now, we're clearing the streets of debris from the storm so we can safely travel. And so emergency responders can get to people that need help. Um, as for rebuilding the lost buildings and restaurants and stuff, I, I, it's going to take years. Honestly, I don't think it'll ever be the same. It's just those places have been there a long time on the beach. My dad went to those when he was young. His dad went to the places when he was younger. Those places have been there a long time. They really made Fort Myers what it was. And now that they're gone, I don't think it'll ever be the same. That was Bobby Pratt. He's a resident of Fort Myers, Florida. Bobby, thank you and take care of yourself and your family. Thank you so much. This is 90.9 WBUR. Checking business, a downturn for stocks today. The Dow lost 1.5%, 458 points, to close at 29,226. S&P fell more than 2% to close at 36.40. The Nasdaq dropped nearly 3% to finish the day at 10,738. Details coming up on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30. It's now 5.16. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases, committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Red Sox pulled out a win at Fenway Park today, 5-3 over Baltimore. They hit the road to start up a series in Toronto tomorrow. In the forecast, partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Lows about 48. Tomorrow, sunshine returns. Highs near 62 tops. Clouds roll back in for Saturday and Sunday, only around 60 to 63 degrees. 62 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about making a modest contribution to create stories and conversations that make your world bigger. Hi, it's Robin Young. Give $10 or $15 a month an ongoing contribution, which will help sustain WBUR for everyone who listens. Please give now at WBUR.org. This is a wonderful time to give, especially because this match is about to come to an end. The match, I mean, is the one that has been put on the table by some generous listeners to WBUR, listeners just like you. They are going to add 50% to whatever you can give and or have given, in fact. Here's the number if you haven't yet, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We have three and a half, four and a half, five minutes left to go before this match comes to an end. Yep, and you know, matches are always magnificent because they supercharge your gift. They always mean more. But in this moment, in these five minutes, which is all we have left on this 50% match, 
It means all the difference in the world. We are significantly behind where we need to be before this fundraiser ends tomorrow. We will end the fundraiser either way. That means we need to ask you to step up now, and you can put 50% more muscle behind your gift if you do it in the next five minutes. That $100 gift becomes $150 a gift. That $10 a month gift becomes $15 a month. And believe me, that's what closes the gap. That's what makes the difference between us hitting it tomorrow and not. 1-800-909-9287, or it's quick on the web, wbur.org. This is Ira Glass of This American Life. And over the last decade in this country, we've seen a real divide between what goes on at regular radio stations and here on public radio. Regular radio gets more homogenized every year. The same few formats everywhere, not a lot of personality. There are a couple good shows here and there, but by and large, it's pretty repetitive. Meanwhile, public radio just gets bigger and bigger. It's sort of corny, but I think that that's because what happens here every day, among other things, just has more heart. Even on our worst day, on our worst show, you can tell that we are here for idealistic reasons. We want news that's more in-depth. We want real analysis of what's going on around us. We want to know about new music that's not being played elsewhere, new writers we might like. And there's still the idea here every day that part of our job is to invent something new right here on the radio. It's a public space, a public square. And it's funded by public support. That's people like you and me who believe in this kind of thing. We pitch in together. We hope you can help out. You can help out right now, in fact, and you can get your um, contribution to WBUR uh, increased by 50% by calling 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We all have about three more minutes left to go before this match is pulled right out from under us, so we want to make the most of it. And you can do that. You can help us fill the gap in support that we have so far in this fund drive. We have been so happy to hear from a lot of people, but we need to hear from more because uh, right now we are lagging a bit in the donations during this fund drive. So this is the time for you to do it. If you give $10 a month, it will be matched. So it'll become $15 a month with no more coming from your bank account. $100 a month to WBUR, if you can swing that, becomes $150 a month to us. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. With less than three minutes to go in this match, Lisa, I always get pumped up on these deadlines because I'm just so competitive. (laughs) But there is an even greater sense of urgency here because we do need to come from behind before the end of the fundraiser tomorrow. You know, you rely on us for clear, um, civil, quality information without drama. So let me say clearly and without drama, we need to close the gap. We are significantly behind in the money that we need to raise in order to bring you the quality news and information you rely on. You make up the largest share of our funding. So We're asking you, I'm asking you to step up and do this now. And the magnificent thing is because of some members of our Murrow Society, you get 50% more muscle on that. A $10 gift uh, per month becomes 15. Sometimes I feel like this is a math test. $100 (laughs) becomes 150. It makes a huge difference. That's how we close the gap and cross the finish line. 1-800-909-9287 is the phone number asking you to be the one 
who closes that gap for us now, WBUR.org. And, you know, what's really heartening is that so many people have responded to our request to call in, uh, not just uh, prior to today, but today, especially when we let it be known um, because of transparency. uh, You're our partners in this, so we want you to know when we're falling short, and we are falling short right now. So many people have responded. We very much appreciate it. We need everybody listening out there to at least do something. You listen, and we totally appreciate that. But please know that we are here only because of listener support, which make up the aggregate amount of our budget. Uh, We have wonderful local businesses. We have foundations, uh, some corporations, but they don't come anywhere near the amount that we get from listeners. By the way, the government, I think we're well under 10% funding from the government. So what we do is we rely on you. We want to be beholden to you, not to corporations, not to the government either. So please make your pledge of support right now because we really need it, and we have this match on the table. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Tiziana, 30 seconds. Did we mention there's a match? (laughs) 50%, but only for the next minute or so. Seriously, so please, you, right now, help us close that gap and get a lot more muscle for your money, 50% more. That is a really good deal. I would take that on my money any day of the week. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We believe in you. We know you believe in us. Show it now. Thanks. Thanks so much. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help people simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. It's time now for our Medical Bill of the Month. And Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal is editor-in-chief of our partner, Kaiser Health News, and is with us to talk about urgent care, emergency care, and how those two sites of treatment interact. Dr. Rosenthal, welcome back. Thanks. It's good to be here. So tell us, who are we meeting today? Today we meet the Cook family of Rome, Georgia. The dad is Russell Cook and his daughter is Frankie, who's a college freshman now. After Frankie was in a car accident, they found out that one huge difference between urgent care and emergency room care is the size of the bill. And that's true for the same patient and the same patient complaint. Oh gosh, this does not sound good. Um, KHN reporter Sam Whitehead visited the Cooks. Let's listen to their story. Frankie Cook remembers last year's car accident in flashes. She was driving a friend home from high school on a winding country road. She saw standing water and tried to slow down, but hydroplaned. The car flipped about three times. We spun around and went off the side of this hill. And so my car was on its side and like the back end was crushed up into a tree. Frankie and her friend were wearing seatbelts and the car's airbags deployed. So nobody was seriously hurt when the police and Frankie's dad, Russell, got there. All of the adults were kind of amazed that they were okay. But it looked bad enough. Oh, it it looked terrifying. Yeah, Uh, they were lucky to have just walked away. Frankie was fine, except for a bit of a headache and a worry she just couldn't shake. I just was concerned because of the nature of the wreck that I had a concussion of some sort and I had an AP exam two days later, my AP physics exam. 
And so I was like, I don't want to, you know, take that with a concussion. So the Cooks went to an urgent care clinic. Russell told a receptionist there that Frankie had been in a car accident and he'd like to have her checked out. And they said, oh, uh, we don't take third party insurance. And it made no sense to me. And she told me like three times, we don't take third party insurance. You have to go to the hospital for that. The nearest ER was about a mile down the road and owned by the same company as the urgent care. They're all pretty close together. It's so much easier to just go to the one that's right there that's owned by the same people. Two CT scans came back clear. No concussion or other internal injuries. And Frankie was sent home with instructions to take it easy for a few days. She passed her AP exam, by the way. So Russell was shocked when he got a letter from the hospital's lawyer saying it was $17,000 for the ER visit. Um, I was pissed. I mean, really, you know, kind of up in arms. Why did I get a $17,000 bill? Russell pushed the hospital for a breakdown of the bill. There was a duplicate $5,000 trauma assessment fee, and Frankie was billed for a level four ER visit, the second highest level of severity. She walked in and walked out and was told to take some Tylenol, you know. So I just wanted to know why was she billed as that, because I've got to pay for it. Russell never got an answer to that question, but he did get the double charge removed. He also doesn't have clarity on why Frankie couldn't have just been seen at the urgent care to rule out a concussion, especially when other family members had been seen at that kind of clinic. Frankie's grandmother was in a car accident, went to the urgent care near her house, was checked out, fined $200 bill. That's kind of what I was expecting. Russell says after insurance, he owes about $1,000 for Frankie's ER visit. On advice from an attorney friend, he still hasn't paid, even all these months later, because he still has unanswered questions about Frankie's bill. I'm Sam Whitehead in Rome, Georgia. Okay, Dr. Rosenthal, this raises some really big questions for me, too. What happened here with Frankie being turned away from urgent care? Well, here's the thing. Urgent care centers can turn people away. They're not subject to a federal law called EMTALA that says emergency rooms have to see anyone who shows up regardless of their insurance or their ability to pay. The law allows urgent care centers to be a lot choosier. And this one chose not to treat someone on the basis of the possibility of auto insurance being involved. And let's be clear here, too. The clinic didn't say we can't treat your kind of injury. They said we won't treat you because of your insurance. So is that what the receptionist was talking about when she said third party insurance? Yeah, People need to know that if you've been in an accident, really of any kind, even slipping in your own bathtub, there's a chance that your health insurance is going to try to get another kind of insurance, say home or auto, to pay your medical bills first. And while urgent care centers have contracts with medical insurers, getting home or auto insurance to pay up may be a big hassle involving lawyers and delays, so they kind of want to avoid that. Hmm, okay. So the other thing that stuck out to me here is that this emergency room was just a mile away and owned by the same company as the urgent care. Well, generally speaking, hospitals do use these omnipresent urgent care centers to create a kind of pipeline of referrals, you know, new patients they can send to the hospital. But I'm not sure you can invoke that kind of conspiracy in this particular case. So what should patients know about visiting these two sites? There are a few important things. First, that the ER is likely to be exponentially more expensive than urgent care. So try urgent care first. 
Also in the ER, you'll get far more testing just because you're there, whether it's absolutely needed or not. So if an urgent care clinic suggests they can't treat you for whatever reason and suggests, oh, just go to the ER, ask instead for a referral to a doctor or a specialty clinic. You're going to save a whole lot of money. All right. That's some good advice. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me again. And if you have an outrageous or just confusing medical bill, go to NPR Shots blog and tell us all about it. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a nonprofit tackling the world's biggest sustainability challenges like the climate and water crises. Learn more at ceres.org slash WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Florida, rescue crews are doing what they can to reach people stranded in the wake of Hurricane Ian. Crews are wading through water and using boats to reach those who rode out one of the strongest hurricanes ever in the U.S. Power outages continue to increase with more than two and a half million homes and businesses impacted by the storm. The worst areas are in Lee County and Charlotte County, where the entire power grid has to be rebuilt. Here's Governor Ron DeSantis talking about the federal government's response. If you go back 372 hours before landfall, most of southwest Florida was not even in the cone. Uh, and then you have a situation where you're dealing, you're staring down the barrel of a hurricane, making landfall at 155 miles an hour. Uh, so the, the response here uh, and just the way people have, have reacted um, has been very, very impressive. Well, Florida may have borne the brunt of Hurricane Ian, but now states farther north are bracing for it. Ian has weakened to a Category 1 hurricane as it travels across the Atlantic Ocean. Forecasters say it could make landfall in South Carolina tomorrow, but coastal Georgia could also get some strong winds and heavy rain, as Benjamin Payne of Georgia Public Broadcasting reports. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp flew to coastal Georgia's largest city, Savannah, to assess preparations as Ian travels through the Atlantic Ocean. Thankfully, we've been very lucky overnight that the storm continues to move out to sea and further eastward. Um, but we're still, the coast is still going to be affected. Thank goodness it doesn't look like it's going to be as much as what we thought the path was going to be earlier in the week. Officials here are still warning residents in low-lying areas to prepare for damaging storm surge. For NPR News, I'm Benjamin Payne in Savannah. Stocks finished sharply lower on Wall Street today. The Dow lost 458 points, down 1.5%. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. As the strength and duration of hurricanes increases with climate change, an analysis finds hospitals in the Boston metropolitan area could be disrupted by flooding during a moderate-level hurricane. WBUR's Martha Biebinger has more on a study from Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Boston ranks third among Atlantic and Gulf Coast cities where hospitals or roads around them would be at risk for flooding during a Category 2 storm. The projections are based on federal storm surge maps using current conditions. Senior author Dr. Ari Bernstein says the risk will increase as sea levels rise. Places that don't know hurricanes from Adam are now going to be at risk and our infrastructure is not ready for it. In addition to developing better backup power systems, the study says the state needs a more detailed plan for evacuating and transferring patients in advance of a storm. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. 
The Chinese firm building new Orange Line and Red Line cars will miss another deadline. The T now expects the final delivery of all new Orange Line cars next summer. The last of the Red Line cars won't arrive until the summer of 2025. Both those dates are more than a year behind schedule. The manufacturing company is blaming pandemic-era supply and labor issues. Massachusetts Congressman Bill Keating is backing a bill that calls Russia's invasion of Ukraine an illegal occupation. Keating chairs the Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on Europe, Energy, the Environment, and Cyber. It introduced legislation today that in part prohibits any federal department or agency from taking action or extending any assistance that implies recognition of Russia's illegal claim of sovereignty over Ukraine's territory, airspace, or territorial waters. Senator Ed Markey of Malden is supporting a similar bill in the U.S. Senate. In sports, make it three straight wins for the Red Sox. Today, they pulled out a 5-3 victory over Baltimore and Fenway. They head to Toronto now for a weekend-long series. And the forecasts look for partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, down around 48 degrees. Tomorrow should be in the low 60s as the sunshine returns, and it could be the last we see of it for a couple of days. Saturday should be overcast and cool, lows about 63. Sunday, cloudy, still windy, only making it to about 60. 63 degrees now in Boston at 535. This is Amory Sievertson, co-host of the WBUR podcast Endless Thread. For thousands of people across greater Boston and beyond, WBUR is a lifeline, a reliable, trusted source of news, facts, analysis, and truth. When you support WBUR, you strengthen and extend that lifeline. You protect WBUR as a resource for a whole community of listeners who rely on us. Becoming a supporter of WBUR means that every story, every interview, every second of breaking news, and every moment of joy you hear, you made that possible. You gave that to everyone who turns to WBUR to help them understand our region, our nation, and our world. So please, go to WBUR.org and make a contribution to WBUR for yourself and for your community, for someone who might not be able to give. You are our lifeline. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you, especially to those people who called during that match that just ended a little while ago. We raised, Tiziana, I don't know if you know this, if you heard it, but we raised $7,000 just in that effort alone. Thank you so much. We are call by call, making up for lost time, making up for the gap that we have now in our fundraising. We're going to be ending this fund drive tomorrow at 7 o'clock. And we are short of what we need to keep our budget on track. So this is serious business we have here because there need to be cutbacks in some way if we don't make the money that we need. So here's the number, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Tiziana Deering. Yeah, I am Tiziana Deering, and I'm going to ask you to forgive Lisa Mullins for that gloomy weekend forecast. It's not her fault, but she did bring you news. the Red Sox one. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. She did did bring you news of the third Red Sox win in a row. And those bits and pieces, right, are part of you what you rely on us for. You also rely on us for the big stuff. I was struck by you talking about Keating being on a subcommittee with Europe, Energy, Environment, and Cyber. And I was like, well, that could not be more spot on to Russia. <laughs> and we can bring you that as well. We can bring you all of it because you fund us. Uh, We do get some gifts from corporate sponsors, but you make up the lion's share of our funding, and it means that our editorial obligation is to you. And in a world where all politics are local, that matters for your local station. We are behind. We can catch up. But to do that, we need you. 
We need you today because this fundraiser ends tomorrow, whether we're behind or not. You have been helping us catch up all day. Now it's your turn. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org because you value what we bring you. You know, when you think about it, um, there are um, uh, plenty of radio stations on the dial, plenty of of, uh, other uh, media that are looking for your ear or your eye or both. And how many of them say to you, we want you to have an investment in what we do. We want you to care about what we do. Um, We want you to be part of our community. Not really, because it doesn't matter to them, because they are responsible really to commercial interests, and public radio is not. We are not. We are beholden to you. That means that we come to you to help us make our operating budget. We get a small amount of money, truly small amount of money from the government. We get some from our uh, wonderful uh, local businesses who we so much appreciate, but that money has fallen back recently as well, foundations as well. We rely on you, and that's really the way we like it because you have come through for us in the past, even as we said during this um, match uh, of 50% that we just ended a little while ago. We got $7,000 in aggregate from those of you who called in. If you haven't, please do so right now because you do have an investment in the station, and we want you to be part of a community. We are in this together, and we can't do it without you. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We do this because we love public media. All of us here at WBUR love public media. We know you love public media, too. We've got to close this gap before the end of the day tomorrow. Show us some love. Now is the time for you to take that step. 1-800-909-9287, please, or WBUR.org. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. The journalism you get from WBUR depends on a strong foundation of listener support. And that's why your monthly gift is crucial. Make a modest monthly contribution that will have deep meaning and a big impact every day. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You know, Daryl Murphy's a fantastic journalist, great host of Consider This, moved here from Pennsylvania. Even he has said, you know, I came here as a reporter for WBUR, and as I needed to learn about Boston, where did I turn? WBUR. As you need to understand what's happening around the corner and around the world, you turn to us online, on air, on your phone. We are turning to you now saying, please take that step forward. Come into the family with us. Make your first gift. Make your second gift. 1-800-909-9287. Help us close that gap. We are behind. WBUR.org. And don't forget, um, we are Boston-centric, Boston-focused, but we want to send you to France. If you give right now, if you call, you will be entered in to win a trip for two to France. This is um, people who are sustainers are automatically entered in. That's making a monthly gift. Uh, People who have already given in this fun drive, even up until now, you'll automatically be entered in. But the the box closes at 7 o'clock tonight. So get your contribution in right now. You'll be able to customize a seven-day trip to Paris and Provence from Shorts Travel. Thank you so much to Shorts Travel. You can visit the Louvre Museum, the Musée d'Orsay, savor French chocolate, make it dark. And you can also discover Notre Dame, the vineyards of Provence. And this is just a fantastic opportunity. And somebody out there is going to be getting it. So make your call now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you so much for your contribution. It's 541. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax efficient strategies at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Iran has experienced shutting down protests. 2009 saw demonstrations sparked by allegations of a rigged presidential election. Protesters were killed, arrested, tortured. In 2019, it was soaring gas prices that drew masses into the streets. Another crackdown followed. Hundreds of protesters were killed, according to human rights groups. So where might the regime's response go to this latest wave of protests now underway, sparked by the death of a 22-year-old woman, Masa Amini? I put that question to someone who's followed all these protests closely, Karim Sajapur of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. I would argue that the survival of the Islamic Republic of Iran is is simply not sustainable to have a regime whose ideology is premised on hostility toward America and criminalizes uh, women's clothing. So it's not a sustainable system, but with a lot of repression, these systems can sustain themselves for uh, sometimes longer than we think. What is driving these protests? They started as a protest over the hijab, over what happened to Masa Amini at the hands of the morality police. But is that the tip of the iceberg in terms of what is continuing to drive them? No. So what's somewhat unique about the Islamic Republic of Iran, even by the standards of dictatorships, is that it's not only politically authoritarian, but it's also economically and socially authoritarian. So... In this instance, the trigger for these large-scale uprisings was the killing of a 22-year-old woman. And some reporting came out saying that she begged the morality police not to take her away. And um, essentially, she was beaten um, into a coma. So this was the match that lit the fire this time. And once that fire is lit, you see all of these grievances come together. Some people, their primary grievance is, is social. Others, it's economic. For others, it's political. And it's a system, uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran, which is ruled by elderly men. The supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, is 83 years old. And he's empowered, similarly, geriatric in traditional institutions. And so... You have a country ruled by very old traditional men presiding over a much more modern uh, young society. One thing that is different from the last big round of protests in Iran in 2019 is a new government, new president. Ibrahim Raisi stepped into the presidency last year. He's a hardliner. What does that tell you about where the protests may go or where the government response may go? Well, I think we can assume the government response is going to be overwhelming brutality. You know, there was a a, a critical moment in late 1978 when there was protest mushrooming against the Shah of Iran, the monarchy in Iran. And the Shah famously went on television and he apologized for past sins and transgressions. And he famously said to people, I've heard the voice of the revolution. 
And, you know, years later, I found a speech from Ayatollah Khamenei in which he said, you know, the Shah thought by going on television, he was going to pacify the crowds. But on the contrary, that's when we saw how vulnerable he was. We smelled blood and we pounced. And for that reason, whenever there has been popular uprisings in Iran, the immediate instinct of the supreme leader and the, the establishment is to crush it, to nip it in the bud, to not see it one inch. So we can assume this, these protests will be met with overwhelming violence. And they have 43 years of, of succeeding in snuffing out protests. So bottom line, do you see these protests as a real threat to the regime? I think they are a threat to the regime, but for uprisings to succeed, you need pressure from below. And we see that in Iran. And I have no doubt that the vast majority of Iranians want to see wholesale change, but that's only one ingredient. The second key ingredient is you need to see divisions at the top. And so far, we haven't yet seen fissures among Iran's political and military elite. If the protests persist, we may start to see those. Would we know? if fissures were developing? Because part of the challenge trying to watch this from outside Iran is the internet has been disrupted, social media platforms have been shut down. Um, how fully do we understand what's happening in senior levels of government? You know, they, they say the fog of war and there's also the fog of, of revolution. Um, you know, we, we haven't had a presence in Iran for four decades. Um, but I think how we will know if we start to see fissures among the revolutionary elite is you may start to see the security forces actually not enforcing crackdowns. Uh, hmm. We may start to see statements or maybe tweets from... You, actually, you, there have been some nascent examples of former Iranian officials, members of parliament, issuing public critiques. Uh, we may start to see more of that. Let me turn you to the role the U.S. may have here, whether that's the U.S. government or private sector. Um, on the former side, the government side, the U.S. has softened some sanctions to try to make it easier for tech companies to help Iranians get around government censorship. You've tweeted about your conversations with Elon Musk, who suggested that his company, SpaceX, could make its Starlink satellite-based internet available in Iran. How promising is that? How would that work? So I myself, I'm not a tech expert, Mary Louise, but when I, I speak to my, my friends who, who, um, who are, they mm -hmm. will argue that this is uh, an important development. Now, I'll tell you that the challenge is, is that, for example, in Ukraine, Starlink has played an important role in, in providing internet up for up to a couple hundred thousand people. The challenge is that whereas in, in Ukraine, which is a... a country which is allied with the United States, the U.S. has a strong presence there, and the Ukrainian government eagerly wanted this internet access. None of those things are true in the Iranian context. And so logistically, it's much more challenging because you're going to have to essentially smuggle in these, these internet kits through neighboring countries. And then there's a, a financial challenge here because you can't expect Iranians to be paying for this internet service. But neither of these are insurmountable obstacles. So just to make sure I understand the comparison, Starlink went into Ukraine. It was seen as a big success um, after Russia uh, hit Ukraine's internet access. Um, but the, the key difference was Ukraine wanted internet access. They wanted people to be able to communicate. Iran would not want people to be able to communicate over, over Starlink satellites. Exactly. I think the Iranian government wants to, it's a police state, so it wants to control communication, wants to control information. And 
wants to be able, if necessary, to essentially throttle the internet so it can repress people in the dark. And yeah. so, um, you know, outside internet access coming in would be very much viewed as a threat by the Iranian government. But the reality is that, you know, Iran is a country which prohibits satellite dishes and it prohibits alcohol, and yet there's probably 30 million satellite dishes in Iran, and according to the regime itself, there's a problem with alcoholism. <laughs> so smuggling small devices into Iran, which are uh, probably about the size of a pizza box, uh, I would say on balance is not an overwhelming risk. Karim Sajapur, he is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he focuses on Iran. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Always my pleasure. Thank you so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. For years, Hollywood's major studios have tiptoed around the idea of a mainstream gay romantic comedy without ever quite committing. Well, now there is commitment. Billy Eichner's Bros is a multi-million dollar big studio Judd Apatow produced R-rated rom-com with an almost entirely gay cast. And it's opening this weekend on more than 3,000 screens. Critic Bob Mondello says what's remarkable about Bros is how unremarkable its arrival feels. You know the rom-com drill, main character surrounded by married friends. So what's happening? Didn't you guys have an announcement? This is a little unexpected, but we are in a throuple situation. Yeah. You're in a throuple? Says relationships are lame. I'll tell you what's progressive now, being alone. I love my life, I love my freedom, I love my independence. That's kind of sad. That I don't want to be in a throuple, I don't even want to be in a couple. Goes to party and communes with gay friend. Bobby, I had sex with that 65-year-old. Jesus, he's ripped. I know, it's like they injected steroids into Dumbledore. And and then... Oh my God, that's Aaron. He's very hot. Something just clicks. Gay guys are so stupid. I know. But we've been smart enough to brand ourselves as being smart. It's our little secret. And immediately, whatever they have going on gets short-circuited so that complications can ensue. Gay or straight, the formula is the same. In this case, the problem is that Irritable Bobby, played by Billy Eichner, and Muscle Gay Aaron, played by Luke McFarlane, are both commitment avoiders. But their specifics don't matter as much as their chemistry. While texting, say? Honestly, I was impressed. You may be more emotionally unavailable than I am. Well, maybe we can be emotionally unavailable together. Maybe we can be emotionally unavailable together. Who's writing your texts, Maroon 5? Kidding! We can go out. Are you asking me out? I'm down for whatever. It does occur to them at some point that they are basically updating You've Got Mail here, and there are references to the Hallmark Channel and When Harry Met Sally, Schitt's Creek, and other rom-coms and sitcoms, because that's part of 21st century dating, right? Whatever, whenever. GIF of Michael Scott dancing. It's good. Office gif? This person isn't gay. So far, definitely so funny, and the laughs remain pretty constant in a script that Eichner wrote with director Nick Stoller as not just a rom-com, but a bit of an explainer. Bobby's the head of an LGBTQ museum, which allows a lot of jokes about gay history. You can't say Lincoln was gay. If we don't do this, we're letting the heterosexual terrorists win. There are trans terrorists, too. Caitlyn Jenner. The filmmakers also do some calculated give-the-audience-credit non-explaining about grinder, poppers, and the support that straight allies offer rather sweetly in this day and age. Well, is he a top or bottom? What does that have to do with anything? Maybe you're both bottoms and that's a problem. I'm not always the bottom, Edgar. Bottom, yeah. Ooh, bottom, yeah. 
Cue the whole family swiveling hips. Oh my god. Gay sex was more fun when straight people were uncomfortable with it. More fun, maybe, but less likely to be included in a major studio crowd pleaser. The producers are betting straight audiences will be comfortable, and after a couple of decades of gay characters on TV, that's probably a safe bet. What matters, though, isn't really whether a rom-com is gay, but whether it's fun. And in Bros, Eichner and McFarlane are fun, whether wrestling in Central Park. Oh, there you are. Or sparring at a dance party. What are you into? One of these ripped idiots with no opinions? No, I'd like someone who's physically very frail and won't stop talking. Or just walking hand in hand in a rom-com montage. There's a certain amount of pressure on bros in commercial terms. Will audiences show up? Will studios make more like it? But you don't feel that pressure when watching it. It's light and bright and just by existing gets to call itself history making with, you should pardon the expression, a straight face. I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CIC Innovation Campus, committed to creating an office space where talent wants to work. Flexible office space tours available at CIC.com enterprise. This is Laura Dern. If there is a world on the other side of a wall somewhere where artists run free and journalists share a point of view to educate us into alternative opinion and voice, and it's used beautifully, and there's opera and Sesame Street and National Public Radio, I want to be on that side of the wall. So thank you, National Public Radio. I pray that you're supported forever. We need you. It's how I get my news. It's how I get to know about human behavior. It's how I, thanks to people like Terry Gross, learn about film and invention, and I care deeply about it. And I never, ever want anyone to feel anxiety about losing voice in our uh, beautiful democracy. Well, another reason to love Laura Dern, as I do. <laughs> I didn't realize that she was a fan of public radio, but, um, but she's certainly not alone. There are many people out there who appreciate uh, what we bring to you on WBUR and know that you can't get it anywhere else. This wonderful uh, mix of, um, of entertainment, of edification, of uh, ideas and, and opinion in some cases, transparently labeled as opinion, by the way. And that's what we're asking you to pay for right now. We are, in the interest of transparency, behind in our fund drive. We are trying to make up for lost time because we are considerably behind. We've been greatly helped by those people who have called in your pledge of support today and previous to today. If you haven't, though, please do it right now because this fund drive is over at 7 o'clock tomorrow night. 1-800-909-9287 is the phone number or a pledge online at WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Radio Boston's Tiziana Deering. Hey, Lisa, you know, they say all politics are local. And the more I've done local news, the more I've come to believe that. But what that means is that local news is essential because news is essential to democracy. When you give to WBUR, you create our conditions, right, which are to provide you clear, 
uh, dispassionate quality stories that give you what you need to know to get out of bed in the morning, function, work in your neighborhood, but also understand the greater world around you, that big, beautiful democracy Laura Dern is talking about. We do that for you, but we also do it because of you. So when we're in a moment like this, when we are behind the eight ball, and we really are, it behooves us, we want to tell you the truth. We're not where we'd like to be. That fundraiser ends at 7, no matter what, tomorrow night. We'd want to close the gap. We need to close the gap. And we know that because of you, we can close the gap. It's a phone call that does it. 1-800-909-9287. Or a quick trip to the website on your smartphone, on your laptop wbur.org. When you think about it, what, what would make you feel better to uh, be listening and to enjoy what you hear on WBUR, knowing that we rely on you for, for uh, our uh, operating budget and, and not giving or giving and being part of this community and being able to take ownership and say, yeah, that story was because of me, or they were able to uh, add on this podcast because of me. I own that. I'm part of this community. And we hope that that's what you will do and realize that we are really reliant on your fundraising donations. And that's why we come to you just a couple of times a year and hope that we will get the amount of money we need. We are behind right now. We are so appreciative of those who have called in today. If you haven't, please do it right now because everything is getting more expensive. We don't raise any fees on you because we don't have any fees on you. So please do your part. If you can add to a previous pledge, please do that. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. So Lisa, I looked up on Google Translate, and I don't know if this is the right way to pronounce countdown in French, <laughs> but it says le compte à rebours. Oh, and we are very convincing. I, well, yeah, I, I don't know what I'm talking about, but as long as I sound like I do in this particular case on the show, I know what I'm talking about. We have a countdown till 7 o'clock tonight. If you give before 7 p.m., we can enter you in a sweepstakes to go to France. Trip for two, uh, $7,000 value, Paris and Provence, uh, food, art, architecture, chocolat, my favorite part, only till seven. If you've already given, if you're a sustainer, you're entered. So now, how about you? You who are not entered, you who are not given, bring the news and information forward to your community and maybe go to France. 1-800-909-9287 or the website, Lisa? WBUR.org. You don't have a chance to win if you don't uh, call in right now. 1-800-909-9287. WBUR.org. We are so grateful for your support for WBUR. Thank you again. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. And from Insperity, providing HR support for 30-plus years, including access to benefits and HR technology. Insperity's mission is to help businesses succeed so communities prosper. Insperity, HR that makes a difference. And from Clavio, an email and SMS platform designed to bring all customer data into one place, with e-commerce integrations to help drive revenue at K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash N-P-R. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. 
Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. After causing extensive damage in southwest Florida and further inland, Ian has regained hurricane strength in the waters of the Atlantic and is spinning toward what's expected to be a second landfall in South Carolina. The hurricane, one of the strongest to ever strike the U.S., roared ashore yesterday with 150-mile-per-hour winds. In Northport, Florida, a town with lots of canals, residents like Curtis Browerstone are assessing the damage to their homes and doing what they can to help. My whole yard's underwater, so I just pushed it off the trailer and and just started going around doing what I can to get people out of the, out of the water. I mean, every other house, there's people in it. Only, only the people that can walk are walking. There's a lot of older people. There's a... a a house in there with a few older people that weigh more than three, 400 pounds, and they're going to have a very hard time getting out of here. The storm has cut off power to millions. At least one person is known dead, though there are reports of others, and it's feared the death toll will go higher. It wasn't long ago that Tampa to the north was bracing for a direct hit from Ian, but managed to escape the worst of the storm. Susan Giles, one talk of member station WUSF in Tampa, reports on what the city is doing to help its neighbors to the south. Tampa is coordinating with Hillsborough County and the state to help storm-ravaged areas. Mayor Jane Castor says all available resources are being sent. As will the communications resources that we're staging in our area in anticipation of Hurricane Ian hitting here. So all of the cell towers, cell service. Tampa is putting together a Swiftwater rescue team of 40 to 70 members and waiting to hear if any of its police officers may be needed. The state has already dispatched search and rescue teams by land, air and by water to help people on barrier islands and along the beaches. For NPR News, I'm Susan Giles, Wintech in Tampa. Russian President Vladimir Putin is poised to annex large parts of Ukraine, a move the U.N. Secretary General says should be condemned. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports on a stark warning from the U.N. nation's chief. Secretary General Antonio Guterres says any decision to proceed with the annexation of regions in Ukraine would be a violation of the U.N. Charter. It flouts the purposes and principles of the United Nations. It is a dangerous escalation. It has no place in the modern world. It must not be accepted. The secretary general spokesperson says Guterres made that position clear in meetings with Russian officials. Guterres says Russia, as a permanent Security Council member, has a particular responsibility to respect the U.N. charter. Whether Russia's actions could jeopardize its place on the Security Council would be for member states to decide. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Stocks resumed their downward slide today. The Dow fell 458 points. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The longtime head of the now-defunct Casa Nueva Vida homeless shelter has changed his plea to guilty to charges of embezzlement. Manuel Duran admitted to taking about $1.5 million from the shelter. He was charged last year. That theft forced the shelter to merge with another organization. Today, a Suffolk Superior Court judge sentenced Duran to one year at the House of Correction with four years probation. New state testing results show a drop in English language skills for elementary, middle, and high school students in Massachusetts. MCAS standard testing reading and writing scores are down from last year and down from 2019, the last time the test was administered before the pandemic. State education officials blame remote learning that reduced in-person class time. 
And the Suffolk County Sheriff's Department says scammers are impersonating department employees to swindle people over the phone. In one case, a scammer told a potential victim that she owed hundreds of dollars in fines because she missed a summons for jury duty. The department says it never calls people to collect money. Make it three straight wins for the Red Sox. Today, they pulled out a 5-3 victory over Baltimore at Fenway Park. They hit the road tomorrow to start up a series in Toronto tomorrow night. And tonight should be a little bit cooler than last night, 48 for a low, partly cloudy tonight. Tomorrow should be beautiful, mostly sunny, cool temperatures in the low 60s, clouding up over the weekend. 63 degrees now in Boston at 606. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. We are going to All Things Considered for more information on what happened in Florida with Hurricane Ian, what's happening the day after the onslaught. That will happen in just a couple of minutes. But first, we just have to take care of some business with you and tell you that uh, we have been behind and remain behind in this fund drive. We want to be totally transparent about that. We have gained some ground today, thanks to all of you who've responded to our pleas, and we hope that you will continue to because we have to end this fund drive in just about 24 hours at 7 o'clock tomorrow night, and we need to end it with all the money that we have budgeted for the coming fiscal year. So please make the call right now before we go back to the news, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. You make up the largest share of our funding, whether that's uh, for All Things Considered here with Lisa Mullins or with me, Tiziana Deering at Radio Boston. It's you. You make the difference for our news online and on air. So when we say we're behind, we must turn to you. We must turn to you for that support. At the same time, we want to turn to you for that support because you, you're, that funding, that form of funding matters and it allows us to fulfill our mission. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. CEO Margaret Lowe. Talk to Morning Edition's Rupa Shinoy about this retooled mission statement we have here at WBUR. Our new mission statement is to produce high-quality journalism and enriching experiences to foster understanding, connection, and community for an expanding circle of people. And when we were putting that together, we thought a lot about why we exist, why do we matter in people's lives, and what's the job we're trying to do every single day. And the answer is we're relentlessly focused on high-quality journalism. It's never lost on us how essential that is, especially as we're all trying to make sense of this crazy, complicated world. And people are so hungry for trustworthy information, which, as you know, it's not always easy to come by. And I like to think that BUR and NPR help thinking people think harder. When we set out to cover a story, we ask ourselves, What are the deeper implications of what we're reporting? What are people going to learn? What are they going to feel? What are they going to remember? And we think about those questions on every front. I know you do when you do a newscast where you brief people on what's unfolding in Boston and beyond. And we do that on our longer, more deeply reported stories, too. I'm really keyed in on Margaret's phrase, expanding circle of people. We're inviting you to join that circle of people. We're inviting you to be the one to expand it, to help us close the gap between where we are now at 6 p.m. on Thursday night and where we need to be at 7 p.m. on Friday night when this fundraiser will be over. 
whether we get there or not. This is the time to ask you to make a contribution. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. We're hoping you will. If you have already, thank you so much for doing that, for doing your part for this radio station, because we are all stronger when WBUR is stronger. And in terms of how we get strong, it is through your funding. This form of, uh, of funding that we have is reliant on voluntary contributions. And who would have thought that that would work? Well, I guess the founders of public radio did and public TV because they know how committed we are to unbiased, independent reporting uh, that is not presented with hype or spin, that uh, chooses to observe the gray and honor the gray in many issues. And they knew that listeners feel the same way and respond to that. And these days, there are fewer and fewer places you can go for independent journalism. So WBUR, we know, is chief on your list. So please pledge your support to keep us strong, to keep us independent. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. We're very grateful. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Hurricane Ian is not done yet. The storm lost some intensity as it passed over land on Wednesday, but it entered the Atlantic Ocean, regained hurricane strength, and is expected to hit South Carolina tomorrow. In Florida, Ian left behind a trail of destruction. For hours, it pummeled communities from Naples to Port Charlotte with 140-mile-per-hour winds. A massive storm surge also devastated resorts like Fort Myers Beach and Sanibel Island. Today, southwest Florida began assessing the damage. NPR's Greg Allen has spent the day visiting communities recovering from the storm. He joins us now from Sarasota. Hi, Greg. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so where exactly have you been today? Well, you know, there's little power and cell service in the affected area, so I had to drive quite a ways north just to get a signal out. But one place we visited was Northport, a town in Charlotte County where there was a lot of canals. Water rushed in there yesterday, residents said, when the storm surge happened, and many neighborhoods were flooded. We stopped outside one development, Country Club Ridge, which still had six feet of standing water in some places. Residents were using canoes and kayaks to paddle to and from their homes, ferrying out people, pets, and possessions. Many people were clearly stressed here. Uh, others were just trying to make the best of it. Yeah. Well, were rescue crews present to help? Well, while we were there, this was all being done by residents and volunteers. You know, uh, people were wondering where some of the help was coming from. Later in the day, we did see some local officials bringing school buses to take people uh, who were being rescued from their homes, taking them to shelters. We talked at one point to Elva Salte and her neighbor, Heather Rosler, about what they went through yesterday. Everything's flooded, trees down, fence down, arbor down, everything's destroyed, everything, every home in there. Windows broken. Windows broken, roofs off. It's really a very difficult time for many here. There's just so much work to be done now. We also visited another community in Charlotte County, Englewood. Almost every building that we saw was damaged in some way. Michael Daly, a resident there, says the problem was that for several hours, it was just the wind was relentless. It was insane. The, the wind was as strong as anything I've ever seen. When we saw the cage starting to go, we started slicing the, the screen so it wouldn't pull the whole side of the house off. If you look around, some of the guys that didn't, their, their, their soffits and everything got torn down. 
it was really a d tough scene there in, yeah. in Inglewood. I can hear it in the voices. Mm. I know that many of these communities there were battered for like hours and hours by this hurricane. Uh, which areas saw the most damage? Well, you know, we're st as you know, as you noted, we're still do getting the assessment in, but yeah. it's clear that one of the hardest hit areas was Fort Myers Beach, which was just totally devastated. You know, we had that storm surge there for, for hours and plus the high winds. Uh, the, the pier there, this well-known uh, pier, was destroyed. Only the pylons are left standing. Uh, some important bridges were also taken out. Uh, the causeway to Sanibel Island was washed out in many places. And that's a place I think many people know. It's this beautiful island that's a big resort, place where people come from around the country. Um, that The causeway is now unusable, meaning that it's totally cut off now from the mainland. Uh, today, uh, Governor DeSantis, Florida's governor, talked about it. Well, Sanibel uh, is destruction. Uh, and this is, I mean, for those of you who haven't been, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful place, um, really neat community, um, and it got hit with really biblical storm surge. The governor said the state will work with locals there to make sure the Sanibel gets back the way it was before the storm. And I think that's going to be, that's been his tone all along, is that he says we will make a commitment working with the federal government to rebuild uh, southwest Florida, you know, so that we can recover from this. And Greg, what about the power situation? Has that noticeably improved at all? Noticeably, it's hard to say. If you're in a place where your powers came back on, then certainly you're, it, it's improved. Uh, and crews have been out very busy today restoring power to some areas. But there's still more than 2 million customers without power. Um, we did get one piece of good news on the power front today, which is from the head of the state's largest utility, Florida Power and Light. He said they didn't find any major structural damage to any of their, their towers. That means that restoring power, although it's going to take some time, might go a little faster than what he'd warned earlier. That is NPR's Greg Allen in Sarasota, Florida, with the latest on Hurricane Ian. Thank you so much, Greg. You're welcome. Earlier today, the Biden administration quietly reversed course on who qualifies for the president's sweeping student loan relief plan. Many borrowers who Biden had promised to help will now be left out. NPR's Corey Turner spotted the change on the Education Department's website this morning and joins us now. Hi, Corey. Hey, Juana. So, Corey, what has changed here? Yeah, so this morning I was looking over the department's loan relief guidance for a very specific group of borrowers. These are people with federal family education loans. They're known as FEL loans. Uh, these are issued and managed by private banks, but they are guaranteed by the federal government. And until this morning, the Education Department's website said these borrowers could qualify for debt relief. They just needed to consolidate those loans into federally held direct loans. But then I noticed around 1115 or so, that guidance completely changed. The website now says these borrowers do not qualify for debt relief unless they started the process of consolidating their loans before today, Juana. Mm -hmm. um, the big question, how many people are we talking about, is, is complicated. We know roughly 4 million have these commercially held fell loans. But we also know that many of them will still qualify because they also happen to have direct loans. Um, just before coming on air, I spoke with an administration official who assured me the number is much lower, maybe around 800,000 borrowers who could have qualified but now won't. Part of this is we'll wait and see. Corey, to me, this sounds pretty significant, but also like the kind of change that could put the administration in hot water with some people. Do you have any sense so far of what the rationale was behind the change? Yeah, an education department spokesperson told me you know, our goal is to provide relief to as many eligible borrowers as quickly and easily as possible. And the department will continue to explore additional 
legally available options to provide relief to borrowers with privately owned fell loans. And Juana, I, I think the tell in that statement is the words legally available. I've spoken with multiple legal experts who say this reversal was likely made out of concern that the private banks that manage these old fell loans could potentially claim financial harm and take the Biden administration to court. Corey, is that a legitimate concern? Are these lawsuits happening? Yeah, uh, they have begun. Um, depending on how many borrowers consolidate, you know, these companies could see a lot of lost loans that they were planning on managing for years. In fact, just today, there was a new lawsuit filed by six state attorneys general. And it makes this very argument about one of these groups called Mohila. It's a loan servicer that manages both federal direct loans and these old RAM loans. And in the legal complaint, they say letting borrowers consolidate to get debt relief, quote, harms Mohila by depriving it of the ongoing interest payments that those loans generate. Mm. And I think the department is worried that, you know, one of these banks or servicers could be granted legal standing in court and then ask the courts to freeze debt relief for everybody. Which would certainly be a big deal. Okay, Corey, so yeah. the department is trying to dodge a lawsuit from one of these banks, but am I understanding you right that it's possible that the right lawsuit could just complicate debt relief for everybody? I mean, it's a possibility. And, and, you know, it's one that a lot of conservatives are actively exploring right now. They see Biden's debt relief plan as executive overreach. The big challenge for them is finding a plaintiff who can prove he will be harmed. Uh, we saw another lawsuit filed Tuesday by a borrower who said he didn't want to take a big state income tax hit mm. on his relief. In response, the department said borrowers can opt out. Now we have today's move likely trying to head off the claims of harm from some banks and loan servicers. Honestly, Juana, I think this is just beginning. I think once we get the application from the Ed Department for debt relief, we'll probably see several more lawsuits. We'll check back in with you, NPR's Corey Turner. Thank you. You're welcome. The rapper Coolio has died. He was 59, and at this point, the cause of his death is unclear. But what we do know is that he helped shape what hip-hop is today. NPR's Andrew Limbong has this appreciation. Listen, no, really listen to the opening bars of Coolio's biggest hit, Gangsta's Paradise, and it's the darkest, most nihilistically dejected thing you've ever heard. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left. Yes, it was released as part of the soundtrack to the Michelle Pfeiffer movie Dangerous Minds, and yes, it got even more famous after Weird Al Yankovic gave it the parody treatment, and yes, it won a Grammy Award. But besides all of that, the song still stands on its own as a piece of hip-hop history. Cleo was born Artis Ivy Jr. in 1963. His mom moved him and his sister to Compton when they were kids. By his 20s, he used his focus on music to help him get over an addiction to crack. 
Well, he became known as a progenitor to the hard West Coast LA gangster rap sound. His music did have some wistful warmth to it. His platinum-selling album Gangsta's Paradise, for instance, had a song dedicated to his kids, who he wished he saw more often. His career never again really reached the highs of Gangsta's Paradise, but he did use his fame to appear on reality TV shows, from Celebrity Big Brother to Celebrity Wife Swap. In 1995, he told a British music magazine The Face that he knew his fame was a Hollywood fantasy and would end soon. But in order to make sure his kids were set, quote, till then, I'm going to play it for everything I can. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, conservative activist Ginny Thomas, wife of Justice Clarence Thomas, has given closed-door testimony to the January 6th panel about her role in the drive to overturn the 2020 election results. A downturn for stocks today on Wall Street. The Dow lost 1.5%, 458 points, to close at 29,226. The S&P fell more than 2% to close at 3640. And the Nasdaq dropped nearly 3% to finish the day at 10,738. Marketplace has details coming up at 6.30. It's now 6.22. Red Sox pulled out another win at Fenway this afternoon, 5-3 over the Orioles. That makes three straight wins for the Sox. They head to Toronto next. For tonight, partly cloudy, a little bit cooler, about 48 for a low. Then for tomorrow, should be lovely, mostly sunny. Temperatures only in the low 60s, though. As of now, the weekend is looking heavy on the clouds. Slight chance of a shower Saturday afternoon, making it to 63, about 60 on Sunday with a heavy cloud cover. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Threats to democracy make an informed public critical to America's future. WBUR will always be free thanks to listeners who give voluntarily. Give monthly to give real journalism a strong future. Here's how. By giving right now, if you can, monthly, $10 a month, $15 a month, call 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Tiziana Deering, and we are urging you to call now because this fundraiser is coming to a fast end. It will be over in just about 24 hours. We're not going to be fundraising for all that time, but right now we are, and we would love to hear from you because we are behind in what we need to raise, and we want to be honest about that. So we're asking you to help us fill the gap right now. In this hour, Coolio and Ginny Thomas and the stock market and the Red Sox and the weather and MCAS and Russia, that's what you get with WBUR and NPR. It's why we are so proud to bring the news and information to you. We bring you 
the news around the corner and the news around the world. And we can because you make up the largest share of our funding. But we do need to close this gap because the fundraiser will be over at 7 p.m. tomorrow night whether we do or not. Now, we also have a chance to enter you into a sweepstakes, but only for the next 36 minutes. I love a good deadline. And we've got one, 7 p.m., to get in on a chance to go to France for two $7,000 trip to Paris and Provence. Only till 7 p.m. If you've already given, you're in that drawing. If you're a sustainer, you're in that drawing. So how about you? 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. If you miss the idea, it is that France is on the table right now. We have a sweepstakes, so uh, anybody who has given or is a a sustainer, a monthly sustainer, or anybody who gives right now up until 7 o'clock tonight has a chance, as Tiziana said, to win a trip for two to France. It's for two people. It includes airfare and hotel accommodations. You will get to see the Louvre, Musée d'Orsay, and you will get to eat chocolate Chocolate. and more chocolate and bring some home for Tiziana and me. Please. Please. (laughs) So you have to make the phone call first at 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. By the way, this comes courtesy of Shorts Travel. We want to mention that because we have a, a lot of fantastic companies that support what we do, and we are so grateful for that. It's listeners, though, who make up the majority of our operating budget, and that is you individually. You are the ones who keep us editorially independent and, frankly, afloat. Here's the number, 1-800-909-9287, or pledge online at WBUR.org. We have a countdown ball on the Eiffel Tower that takes us to 7 o'clock tonight for you to get in on this wonderful thank you gift from Shorts Travel, which is a sweepstakes to go to France. We have a bigger countdown ball to 7 o'clock tomorrow night to close the distance. We are falling short. All day you have been stepping up. A little bit longer, a little bit more on that countdown. 1-800-909-9287 for you to call, for you to go online at WBUR.org. I support WBUR because it keeps me informed, it enriches my life, and it keeps me connected to the world around me in a way that I don't have time to do all by myself. They help me to stay educated on the issues that are going on, not only in the nation but in the world, and I want to contribute to that and help them be able to give those services, not only to me but to everyone in the community. I don't want to see one of the last bastions of quality journalism go by the wayside. I want WBUR to remain independent, and the only way that happens is if I contribute and if other people contribute. Become a member today. Give monthly at WBUR.org. It's true that local journalism has been devastated by broken economic models at a time when we all need real journalism. Our economic model is quite different. We do not send out bills. We do not have a firewall. What we have is the tremendous human resource of you, our listeners, and you understand what the deal is. We don't have commercials. We don't have uh, editorial concerns caused by commercial interests. What we have is you who we are beholden to and who we rely on for the majority of our fundraising. So please make your pledge because every single pledge makes a difference. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And we've got a countdown of just a little more than 33 minutes to give you a chance to be entered courtesy of Shorts Travel for a trip for two to France. It is wonderful when we can thank you like this. We root for you. We love to give you these chances for these wonderful gifts. This case, 
only till 7 o'clock. Give now, and not only do you help us meet an urgent, urgent need for your support, but gives you a chance to enter you for a fantastic opportunity to go to France. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Lisa, bring us home. We can be $10 a month, $15 a month, $20 a month, whatever is comfortable for you. We just need to hear from you. Please do it now. 1-800-909-9287. Thank you so much. WBUR supporters include H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, performing the glories of Bach. Immerse in Bach's masterworks. October 7th and 9th at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. Conservative activist Ginny Thomas talked behind closed doors today to the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The panel wanted to speak with Thomas, who's the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, because of messages between her and key figures in the effort to overturn the 2020 election results. Her lawyer said that Thomas answered all of the panel's questions and played no role in the attempt to reverse President Biden's win. The House Select Committee interviewed Ginny Thomas after months of negotiations. Committee Chairman Benny Thompson has previously said her interview would be key. It adds to the body of knowledge about whether or not she had additional information as to what went on on January 6th. The panel wanted to talk to Thomas about her conversations with then-President Trump's Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and conservative lawyer John Eastman. Here's California Democrat Pete Aguilar, who sits on the panel. Uh, we'd like to hear uh, from Jenny Thomas, um, her discussions and uh, coordination uh, and text messages to Mark Meadows, as well as uh, specifically to John Eastman. The two were lead figures in the former president's efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. Aguilar said, like other witnesses before her, Thomas's testimony may be shared with the public. Uh, like Many individuals who come before us will hear the testimony, uh, will continue the investigation, will continue having conversations, um, and uh, when it's relevant, uh, we'll present it to the public. Today, Thomas's attorney said she reached the deal to testify to, quote, clear up misconceptions about her activities. He said she condemned the January 6th violence. During her more than four-hour visit to the O'Neill House office building near the Capitol where she testified, Thomas declined to respond to reporters' questions. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson's Drum Folk. They took away the drums, but they could not stop the beat. Drum Folk is a high-energy, thrilling, percussive celebration inspired by the Stono Rebellion of 1739 in Boston, October 5th through 16th at the Cutler Majestic Theater. Tickets at artsemerson.org. And farmers to you. You can feed your family organic produce, pasture-raised meats, dairy, and more from Vermont all year round. Farmers2you.com slash WBUR.